Ahoy! And welcome to the Sunken Treasures Podcast. This is an exploratory adventure where five friends from across the globe seek to find hidden gems lost to the tides of time. From cinema and literature to philosophy and economics, we are a small yet mighty armada of unique expertise, and together, we attempt to map out meaning in our world today. The captains of this adventure are Daniel Knickerbocker, Alejandro Chavez, Donovan Roberts, Dikyat Mutiala, and me, Kat Lee. Keep in mind, this is an interactive podcast. We recommend checking out the episode's treasure beforehand for a much richer experience. You can find links in the description of the episode. So, are you ready to sift through the sands for the sunken treasures? Uh, welcome back, everyone. This is part two from last week's One Man's View of the World by Lee Kuan Yew. We're very excited to dive into it. There is so much in this book. Where last week we covered more of an emphasis between the U.S.-China relations and how Singapore plays a part in that. This week we'll be focusing more on how Singapore has been working with Europe, Japan, India, as well as, of course, the global economy moving forward. Listeners, if you've read this book, just know it's impossible to cover all of it, but we're going to try our best. So stick with us as we dive into this amazing man, Lee Kuan Yew, and exactly that, his view of the world. Europe is where we'll begin. Uh, What do we have to say about this section? Europe. (laughs) I think Europe is such a funny sort of... Like I, I see my grandmother's from France and, and I still have family that lives in France. France evolved like the countries that's kind of like the most upside down and the most nationalistic and, you know, it has all their problems. But, you know, I think when you look at the social programs, it's really easy to idealize um, the benefits that they have for people. Um, but I know my, my mom's cousin, um, they're in sort of a higher income bracket in England. They pay over 50% um, in taxes, I think. Like, it's incredible. Where? Um, in England. Um, ah. And she doesn't actually mind. Like, they're so proud of their healthcare system that is, like, going, you know, bankrupt. And it's such an interesting thing. Um, So I like that he touched on that, that it's not sustainable and that we're starting to see. And also, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes or a previous episode, the, the rioting that's happening in France because they want to increase the retirement age because they all want their, France has a fat pension. Um, It's a great place to retire because you've spent like all your taxes, your entire life feeding it. And then they take really good care of you. And they, I mean, it's like rain all over again, right? Well, and they're very strict with, I looked at, at trying to get my citizenship and they don't mess around. Like they don't do a flyby. Like you have to live there for five years. You have to pass a culture exam and a language exam and demonstrate your like dedication to France. Like this isn't like Italy where they're like, if you can prove you have a fourth degree relative, we'll make you Italian. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah. Well, at, right out of the gate, like I think this is even in the... Uh, in the table of contents, but he just describes Europe decline and discord. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and 
I mean, as we kind of touched on last week, but like the obviously the shifting of global power, Europe used to be, you know, front man, you know. Anyways, so we're looking at Europe and like it goes into a little bit of how it's declining. Of course, it's he doesn't think that the UN, of course, is going to persist as it is in its current state. The European but Union. The EU. Or I apologize. Yeah, not the <laughs> UN. Yes, thank you for the correction. That's a very, very distinct one. Um, I did love, like for me, I don't have my finger on the pulse of anything economic. Um, I loved the clarity of monetary unification without fiscal unification, like as soon as I read that that section, I was like, how did this ever happen? Like, if anybody had any, like, people who are actually economists, like, and they still push this through knowing that, you know, like, Germany would be holding up Greece, you know, that Greece wasn't suddenly going to become really responsible. And, and then, like, Brexit recently, right? Like, how they're suffering from all that. They're suffering yeah. from Brexit? Oh, it depends yeah. on mean, who they, you talk to. True. Very. It does. My cousin, both ways. my cousin, and her husband are like on polar opposites on that, and both of them are like convinced it's going great. So, just uh, because because I didn't really understand the Brexit thing. So the Brexit thing was that there are some politicians in Brussels whose rules would supersede the rules of the UK's government in terms of what they can or can't do, but in exchange for giving up your sovereignty because the people of the UK can't elect the members of Brussels, the body that controls the, the whole thing. The UK people have no control over those people. So those people are like, no, they're rulers who they can't control, but in exchange, they get to travel through Europe without a visa. Right. For some reason, it didn't seem like a fair exchange to me. It, am, I, what, am I missing something else from the whole story? From what I know, at least for the UK, that it's been it's Brexit has been been particularly difficult on on trade, on getting goods in and out of the country to the rest of Europe, which has been a big big part of of what the UK was was doing for itself. And um, of course, so they're back to the British pound, and then you get into like the valuation of different currencies, and some currencies are being pegged to the U.S. dollar, but we know that the U.S. dollar is declining, so it becomes this whole other like monetary mess. But in terms, I think you are right about the representation lacking for UK citizens in, in Brussels and for other EU members. Like, I don't, I don't believe. The, yeah, the, the thing, the thing with the European Union is. There, there are a few things to, to understand, to, to look at the process of uh, how it happened. Like first, when it started off, it was, it was just a trade agreement about not having taxes on certain things like coal and steel so that they would move freely and they would be able to sell them without high taxation and a very mercantilistic attitude, which is the attitude that I will keep selling my goods, but I won't buy from other countries because I want to save my gold or whatever is the value, right? So you want to sell your goods and you want to get those margins, but you don't want to. So it's a very protectionist kind of standpoint. And given at that time, not so far off history of like the countries fighting and all of that, there was a desire to operate as a bigger unit to for Europe to act as a bigger unit and to act as a singular negotiating power. 
And the thing is that the thing that happened with the European Union is that it wasn't ever supposed to be this big when it started off. So when it started off, it wasn't even the European Union. So there are multiple levels to this. At first, it is just you don't overly tax what I'm exporting to you. I don't overly tax what you're and you accept certain commodities that you do that for. And then there are multiple stages to that with the extreme stage being a political union. A political union is something like the United States. There are different states. They agree we're all one country. And the, the lowest point is basically where you say, I won't tax you, you don't tax me. And then there are multiple levels of, okay, we let immigration happen. And then there is the, there is the monetary union, which is where we all have the same currency. So they've gotten till that point. But the problem is, Everyone has their own taxing system about how they collect their taxes and what it is spent on. So the point Lee Kuan Yew is trying to make is that them having a monetary union, them having the same currency so that they are closer together and there is free movement of labor without uh, all the excesses of immigration. No, uh, for this particular industry, I'm going to protect without having that protectionist attitude because labor is not just a matter of labor, right? It is like a good you are having like having a like taxes against goods when you protect your labor you let like you allow your citizens to go but you don't take citizens in it is a different thing of like protecting your service giving factor of the economy which is the labor so at that point it becomes okay we also let free uh, immigration and all of that you can any one of your people can work in my country my people can work in your country we just will all try to become a better place and attract these people. But we are not going to say, no, you can't move around and all of that. So it is towards becoming a bigger chunk and having a better chance at the negotiating table. So when countries like France and Germany and all of them were doing that, it was it still made reasonable sense when it was only like six or seven countries, which after World War, because of the especially because of the World War, had become much smaller powers. But once they started getting together, when they started trying to include West, Eastern Europe and like very, very different countries and on the much lower end of the economic spectrum, like, like Greece and those countries were not doing well. And that is why the, the Greece crisis is what created around 2015 a huge talk about is this even working? Why are we trying to bail it out? It's our money and this and that. So when they started including countries that were so far apart in their stages of economic growth and then tried to integrate it, things got slippery and very... So those are the points Likone talks about in terms of they're too different and because they're always also, even if you look at the European notes, right, you all have these monuments. They all look vaguely like European monuments. But none of them are actual monuments because the countries would fight about why is your monument on it? Why is my monument not on it? So they all resemble like a French cathedral or a bridge in the Netherlands, but it's never a specific one. So there are a lot of these gymnastics you have to do just to hold it together because there is no common identity. Like it's not like 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 in the case of India, we were put under a colonial power. So we all accept the union, though we are like very different. But that did not happen to Europe. So they got to the point of monetary union. And now the struggle is that we have the same currency. We we have the same chip to negotiate with the global economy. But our taxation systems are different. We we decide. So there is that innate conflict. So Lee Kuan Yew makes the point that, you know, this is not going to last. And, And obviously, 
five years after he made that thing, uh, the UK UK voted to Wait, get what, out. What I don't what I don't understand is that he said that there are seventeen countries in the European Union. There's now twenty eight, I, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're including like Romania, Bulgaria, Greece. I just pulled up a map to like visualize, but like there's the teeny tiny ones like Latvia and So the UK was a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. UK was a part of that, yes. But they weren't using the hero though. Exactly. So the thing is, there are two things again. There is something called the European Union and there is something called the Eurozone. They're different. Mm. So there are various distinctions about the European Union are all these countries. But the Eurozone is just the countries that use the Euro. But even in that, there is a specific caveat. So there are multiple distinctions. And even so in them, inside the European Union yeah. exists the Eurozone. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a subset. I think it's a subset, but let me just clarify. But keep but, but the whole so so the point of it I heard is that they would combine all these countries into one country essentially. That would give them better negotiating power to negotiate with companies and corporations and other countries to say, hey, we have all these people united as our country. And if you want access to our market, you know, we have more leverage to negotiate with you now. Right. Um, A little yeah, bit. To become yeah. stronger as an economy and all of that. And yeah, Eurozone is basically countries that use the euro and it is a subset of European Union. Yeah. Go OK, on. got you. I have a question. Do y'all think there will be more countries to exit the EU, like, like the UK? I will. Is that kind I, of what? Yeah. I don't like. I don't. I have like two people, which is definitely not a representation of. But the people that I am like, the family that I have, like, despite France being super nationalistic, they are like big pro EU. Like that, you should because I think the movement is so much easier. Um, just like going in and out of countries, um, is not. There's got to be a sense of like we're stronger together as opposed to you know divided we fall. Because it's like imagine in the United States, like every time you went from you know Texas to Colorado, you had to it involved a passport and like you know, and so I do think that there that that piece of it makes sense and the being able to trade goods when they're so close um, and some, you know, coastal cities have fish, you know, seafood and, you know, but I don't know. Anyway, I think that that part of it can be worked out very easily. It's just, it just comes down to an agreement between one country and another that this license plate or this group of people will be allowed to, to move here and there. I think that countries are trying to hold firm because they want to punish the UK for not joining the group. And so they're making it hard for them. They're trying to give them that friction to force them into being obedient then. And um, I still don't think it's a fair trade. You can't give away all your autonomy and sovereignty, all control over your government to this group who you can't elect nor control. No. In exchange for traveling freedom? No. But I wonder... Like what it looked like during, I don't really remember the transition, but like, I know my grandmother had a bunch of francs in the bank and like she didn't have, she wasn't there to like physically exchange them. And she just like lost all that money because it like suddenly wasn't worth and like she couldn't do anything with it. Wait, francs? Yeah. The franc um, used to be the currency of France. The currency of France. Um, 
And really? Isn't francs like a currency in Switzerland or something like that? What's the name of their currency? One thing to note, though, you mentioned Switzerland. Switzerland is not in the EU. I didn't know that. That's because Switzerland is like, it's, they always sit in the middle of the seesaw. Right. They never pick a side on anything. Um, <laughs> they're, they have the World Bank. <laughs> I'd like to read my favorite two paragraphs of this book, of the entire book. Go for it, yeah. It says, even as Europe attempts to sort out the problems associated with the single currency, the continent cannot afford to take its eyes of other underlying causes of its relative lack of dynamism. The welfare state and rigid labor market laws. What seemed like good ideas when conceived and gradually introduced throughout Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War have become in the last few decades increasingly unaffordable, especially with the emergence of developing economies in Asia. If Europe is to avoid sustained lethargy and regain the energy and industriousness it was once known for, it has to make bold and painful reforms to reduce its elaborate system of entitlements mm. and to liberalize hiring and firing rules for companies. I'll just, I'll just go with that one. So he then goes on to mention his time in the UK, in England, when after the war they were giving away lots of free stuff. He enjoyed the free healthcare. I think he was being given, but yeah, he, he could then get like saw a free how, pair of glasses and stuff. And yeah, yeah. But th- he then said that he saw how that would lead to promote inefficiency and inaction. So his overarching, the big problem he believes with the European section of the world is that they lack dynamism, creativity, that innovative spark that would lead to new inventions, new ideas that would allow them to compete on the global market. And he attributes that lack of dynamism to the welfare state and to labor market laws. I mean, <laughs> that's, um, I don't know. Yeah. Did Lee Kuan Yew knew that, know that he's not supposed to say those things in public? Like, this is <laughs> Like, this puts him in the league with, I mean, I don't want to, to call the, the far right people, but this is this is some controversial opinions here. I the, think the thing is, yeah, yeah, go for it, Dan. No, go ahead, forget. Uh, no, I was I was just saying. I think the thing is, uh, he is more concerned not with the nature of the movement of employees or this and that because he constantly, even for Singapore, he wants to create the, this place where like, you know, they can attract people and all of that. I think his, his problem is not with the movement of it or like his, or with like, you know, the losing sovereignty part of all of it. The main thing is the dynamism in terms of how bureaucratic processes can be and how hard it can be to like, you know, change your employees or it's, it's, it's not quite that simple that, yeah, he just doesn't, uh, it's 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 not quite that simple that he just wants the market to do its thing or that is not the implication because you no, just have so, to look so, at Singapore to think that is not what he thinks. <laughs> Good. So so there is another section where he then talks about the 2008 crisis and how when the free market is allowed to run, 
how it can hurt society and the too big to fail banks. So he definitely yeah. is in favor of some amount of regulation. Exactly. But even yeah. with that being said, just acknowledging the fact that when you okay, so so you have smart people in your country who invent all these things. Let's say Bill Gates invented Microsoft, a, a software that makes our life easier to do stuff, and he sells these CDs to millions of billions of people across the world to make their lives easier, and he becomes a billionaire. To then say that we're going to have a welfare state where we take a lot of what this guy has made and redistribute it to the people. I mean, you, you then prevent him from allocating that money in different ways in society. I, it, it, you, it's like you punish success when you constantly take from the people who make and give it to those, to other people in society. But it also depends on what that society believes growth is because not all mm. societies believe that as much success as possible is the way forward. Some societies just don't believe that. That's because, true. And that's why he's saying yeah. Europe is one of those countries. Exactly. They're comfortable exactly. with their it, welfare state. Exactly. Exactly. Like if, if there is a United States that's doing all this, uh, you know, is on the, you know, on the cutting edge of development and technology and they have nurtured this entrepreneurial attitude for centuries and it makes sense for them politically, sociologically and economically to do that. Just blindly mimicking it would crash a society. Of course, they have to try to become more dynamic in terms of, uh, you know, uh, trying to get investments and all of that. But just thinking to create a Bill Gates, what you have to do is, you know, give him access to everything he creates. It's it's not quite that simple because even with, when we talk about the European Union, there's this there's this concept we study about in economics, which is which is the concept the idea of the economic north and the economic south. The economic, it's basically this argument that there are some countries. Once we started, once we moved on to this uh, idea that globalization is good for everyone. There were countries that were already in a certain place in their development where they use raw materials and create the final goods. And there are countries which are suppliers of these raw materials. So and the margins on the finished goods and for the industrialized nations tend to be a lot more. So if these nations just said, if the nations in what we call the economic south uh, just said, OK, we'll, we'll just open our, ourselves up. And, you know, the United States opens itself up, which the United States doesn't, by the way, which is like a whole right. other discussion. Oh, yeah. Like you can't export it to the United up. States like United States exports to you. Like, like there was a whole thing we used to. Anyways, that's a, that's a different uh, thing altogether. So when a country is in what we call the economic south, when they're in a place where they're the raw material supplier and they need their industries to mature, there is an incentive for them to close away and want to develop that first. It is not exactly silly because the consensus says, yeah, just, just globalize it. Let's just business do its thing. But no, 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 no. Someone has already built up the muscle. And if you're going to go fight them as an infant, you will keep losing. So the exactly. status quo will be strengthened and the status quo will enrich proportionally. And that proportions are not are just not enough sometimes. That is, a, that is the whole idea of the like the banana republic right they they talk about yeah. how like some countries are just made into this this is this is this idea comes from where there were huge countries which like all farms were taken away to just grow bananas 
there's like this one book I'll, I'll I don't remember what the name is about uh it's called something else now United Fruit was it what was it called this company oh, which yeah, grew yeah. the United Fruit company which is now United Fruit company yeah, yeah they were like whole whole agricultural land taken over just make bananas oh. make bananas make bananas they contributed so to like to genocides like it was an exactly. atrocious business model exactly and, exactly sorry, just to interrupt you real quick the like another thing that plays into this that sticks out so so distinctly from my you know few classes of economics in college was just like this race to the to the south when you're talking about the like economic north economic south is or the race to the bottom is more so the the phrase and so when you're talking about the economic south that it is materials but it's also labor and as soon as you see these smaller countries like hey we're we're gaining some stability in our economy let us you know kind of protect that and try to like help that grow as soon as they put put in protectionist policies big you know big business you know namely like Europe and United States but elsewhere they'll move as soon as you make it more expensive, they'll take their business to the next cheapest place. And they'll just keep chasing that, like the cheapest labor and the cheapest resources. And as we know, like this globalization of trying to move those products across the world. I mean, it's just this like multi-layered kind of like fucked up system. But coming back to what Donovan was saying, it's like this balance of like, you can't have a welfare state you have to have people underneath enough pressure to be motivated to want to create and do and, and, you know, try to seek better solutions and products and services. But, but at the and same time, like, yeah, go. The, the thing is, so America is a country who does that for the world. The ones who have this, the winners and losers in society. And he believes, um, Do Kwon, that if you let the free market run, that some people will win, but there will always be an underclass of poor people who just didn't manage to win and that get left behind. I don't know that that is true. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, the world benefits from the technology and innovation that comes out of America. Since America cost, started though? the whole... Since... Okay, okay. So in terms of the cost, we, we'll talk about the cost a little bit later because I, I said that underclass that he believes is left behind... I don't think that that's a necessary result of the free market part of it, as in incentivizing innovation and whatever. I don't. And free market could also be summarized into a word called like neoliberalism, and that's not to be confused with like social liberalism. But neoliberalism is like the economic policies of free trade, um, and that I think, Vikyat, you bringing up the dole. You know, United Fruit Company, but now Dole. I mean, I, that's something I know. Yes, now like, it is Dole. Yeah, spent a lot of time with just giving you know research in Guatemala and stuff. Like an atrocious history of how American business influence can destroy a company or a, a country. And so, American back business to, influences. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, so we basically, to, to, to time, just that sounds, yeah, that to, sounds. To, ju to just finish the metaphor of the banana republic, it is where you create a place where this whole country just sustains on creating that one thing. So now they can't compete with you because once they're exploited to that point and they lose all their capability to compete on different fronts, then you're like, okay, now we all play fair. Everyone just open your borders and all of that. Then what happens is that there are the strong countries and there are the countries that are not yet strong because they have their industries have either been destroyed or they just have not caught up to that point. 
so though openly they'll say yes yes of course we want to open up there is the innate understanding that there is no way our businesses are going to uh withstand the competition from foreign countries because uh we'll talk about uh, india a bit later but uh, that is what happened to india too uh, all the industries that were working for india were completely decimated so that we could all just be cotton producers for the united kingdom for specifically for the east india company so people who used to manufacture cotton take cotton make wool make clothes and what used to all of that excess surplus that india could keep was taken away and they were just made cotton manufacturers and then all that cotton was taken to turn into clothing with all their power looms and all of that in the uk so now when they leave india and then you say oh let's all be friends now i don't tax you you don't tax me you don't uh, tax my clothes that i sell to you just let's just all be friends it is not quite that simple because i think we some countries n- need to have that place where they can grow up their industries it's it's not it's not a blanket solution for everything but it's not just the case that oh countries are just you know it's just politics or something like that because globalization doesn't benefit everyone equally it hurts <laughs> right. some I I think we're I think we're 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 combining two different topics though, because yeah I think one topic is dynamism, creativity, and how to encourage people to be more creative in a population, but the trade aspect is more towards. I think that that's a different part of it. Of course, of course, of I'm course, not, of course. I, this was partly. I think there's some link. I think there's a yeah there's connection because I, I, the balance is like how do you. encourage people to be competitive right in a free market you, you think a free market's going to encourage people to participate and like oh. try to do something new and try to compete but at the same time like when you talk about a welfare state in reflection to like Europe or the EU in general like uh you, you find people you know maybe there's a tendency to be reliant on the government right like to have this sense of I don't really have to work that hard or or whatever the criticism is. I mean, and largely this is a criticism of socialism in a broader broader sense, but okay, yeah, there's so, a balance though too. I I don't know. So there's a part here where he said um as a world becomes more globalized, the low-skilled European workers found themselves competing not just amongst themselves, but with workers from Japan and later from China and India as well. Exports were undercut and industries gradually moved their production production centers to asia naturally the wages of european workers also declined without the entrance of china india and japan the welfare state would probably have remained viable for quite some time but with their entrance it did not take long for welfare to become unsustainable so maybe there is some connection between people being creative and competitive within their country and how that would lead to foreign exports actually coming in and running them out of business then are taking away their production mm-hmm. base out of their country and stuff anyway i think we should move on to another bus- topic oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're at 30 something minutes yeah I would just like final I think business mm-hmm. can be used as a weapon where you place your production and your manufacturing gives you a lot of leverage in that country in that you know organization the EU and if you don't give me those tax breaks you as a business owner you don't give me you know the free trade policies that I'm looking for hey guess what I'm going to go to the to the next person that's going to give me 
the next country that's going to give me cheaper you labor. You said you're using resources. it as war? It can be used as a weapon. Like you can, you can well, make demands. It's a leverage. Yeah. You're talking about local companies started in the country or for companies no, that want so. to come in and have that job? Exactly. The latter of the two, uh, which is why I think Lee Kuan Yew well, is would say making that the observation. It, it's like saying, hey, I can bring you 300,000 jobs for your people and 300,000 wages to increase your GDP and growth. In exchange, what can you do for me type of thing? So I'm going to give you a massive tax break, which also hurts your GDP. So it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. So, so yeah, it, 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 benefits, act. it benefits the people in terms of the people will get the wages. But at the same time, I'm then asking you to not take from my company in terms of give me less taxes. I pay less corporate taxes into your country. Which... And also, whenever this kind of thing happens, they, you also think about what is called the multiplier effect, right? Because once you put wages into the country, those people are going to buy from someone else and someone else, someone else. And although it is a decreasing, it is a, a decreasing ripple, it still ripples across the economy and like it stimulates it the economy and, overall. And the thing is, I'm waiting for that trickle down off. effect. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the trickle. Even, the, <laughs> I know, yeah, even the people, different. You say ripple, not, I yeah. say trickle. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> even the people who work that. in the company itself, like the, the higher ons, they have to spend a lot of time on the ground. And they buy houses, they buy cars, they build roads, stuff like that. And so I think the overall benefit usually still benefits the country in the long run to give them lesser corporate tax, but to allow mm. them to actually be a base in your country. Yeah, depending on the cut they're asking for and what they're expecting. The cut? Depending on what the expectation is. But of course, of yeah, course, like, like say, Kat said, it's a balancing act. What do you gain? What do you lose? And I, don't, I don't think, I don't, okay. So in terms of balancing act, it's just a government saying, okay, let's say the, let's say the government takes zero taxes from these corporations. But they come in and offer 300,000 jobs, you know, money from remittances coming in and out. Your country benefits a lot. Saying that you want to collect taxes, saying I want more from you still, right? I mean, is it kind of fair? Yes, it's fair because you get some security from the police that's in those countries. You get to use their infrastructure. You do get some benefits. But I would always say that what the, com what, what the government's collecting taxes usually outweigh the expenses that these corporations put on the infrastructure and from the security, it's just that the governments want more, which I don't it's know. That's, because that's you can't just give for one party, right? Because you're trying to create a regime, in, uh, sorry, uh, a regime under which you can have multiple companies coming. You can't just, it's not just a matter of it's, of course, it's a case, but in some cases, it's a case by case thing. If it's like a more yeah, that's, that's corruption. Thing, like... When there's corruption, that happens. <laughs> but usually, it should no. be one blanket system that's established that everyone who yeah. comes in plays by those rules. Exactly, exactly why you can't do zero taxes because then you can't tax anyone. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying logic. That's true. That's but I'm saying that's just a, a experiment. That even if you took zero, yeah, you would still yeah. be benefiting from them being there. The taxes is just additional benefits that you would like to get for other reasons. 
So I don't think it, I don't think there's any way of losing. So saying that it's like a like there's a win lose type of thing. There's no losing in the situation. It's just oh yes, there the is the degree of winning. I uh, well, I think okay, maybe I would agree. I would I will concede to you that there's a lot of shades of gray in this equation for sure. Yeah. Um, and those shades of gray could be like, you know, defined as a maybe whatever incremental percentages of success, but the loser will always be the, the workers in the countries that are not using protectionist policies or, or their governments aren't looking out for them because they will be subject to the worst working conditions for the lowest wages and, and will get none of the profits that these you know massive corporations are gaining, but also to kind of counter you, Donovan, some. you know, we we were talking about you know corporations coming into a country, and you know, hey, I could provide your people three hundred thousand jobs or whatever it may be. Let's say said country says, well, you've got to pay whatever. Let's say a ten percent tax or twenty percent something out, you know, a little higher, and they're like, uh, you know, that we don't pay that in whatever country. I'm going to go over to whatever country because they only tax us 5% and whatever. Right. <laughs> so when that company corporation leaves, takes their jobs with them, would the first country be inclined to, would there be more of an opportunity for locals in that first country to develop their own businesses and to actually create more of a self-sustaining con- economy in a local sense, as opposed to become, you know, you run the risk of creating a dependency with these foreign companies these foreign corporations that are coming in i think it's just like any sale right you understand that even if you just want to buy just you're just in a place you're you're negotiating a product it's just you understand that the company is coming to your country because they have something to gain so you see how much of that you can reap so that you get the taxes and then you can put both the benefit of the jobs and the benefit of the taxes into the economy you just it's it's always yes. it's always a tug of war. I guess negotiation is always I'm, a tug of war. I love that analogy about negotiation. I guess what I'm I'm getting more so out was when Lee Kuan Yew was talking about dy- dynamism. Like dynamism? Am I saying that right? Yeah. That dynamism, 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 yes. Yeah. Um like my understanding of that would be like you have more players in a space to create a dynamic economy as opposed to maybe one or two huge corporations. The dynamism he's talking about also has to do a lot with manpower because a welfare state and a chilled out state tends to create labor that is used to a lot of benefits. And there is no end to, there is no specific end about at what state enough benefits are enough benefits. So so that is the reason many countries move certain centers away from certain European cities because the, the number of uh, actual working hours they put in or the, or the, or the intensity in, of work in those hours is much more laid back. Like even, I mean, this is not like an exact example, but like you can see this very thing happen in the difference between when you're applying to a Singaporean university and applying to a German university, Sometimes in a German university, they'll just be like, oh, I'll be, I'm going on vacation for two weeks. I'll reply when I'm back and things like that. And you're supposed to like know that they are entitled to all these privileges. So when businesses are functioning at a certain pace, they will go to the best service provider. So when a whole labor force is working like that, for some industries, it just doesn't work. 
I mean, that's not to say that you have to exploit the labor force to the extreme. You have to find your competitive edge. If you stay a welfare state and the, the people know that they are never going to lose their job, of course, you're doing good for the people, but you run the risk of not being competitive enough. I think yeah, that is the dynamism. But I think about. that's, I think, I think that would be related to like, if you're talking about government, private versus government run businesses, where you have a salary and you're protected, regardless of your quality of work, you'd be protected. But in these companies here, yes, he's saying that they they have some some restrictions on the hiring and firing policies. So I yeah, guess you can't just right fire there. them. Yeah, right. even in so private companies, why, it's not just government. Yeah. So I guess that's why they know they don't have to work as hard or I'll, I'll give you an efficient example. Working manners. Yeah. Like you have Amazon warehouse employees who are like really like the labor conditions are not that great. They can't do that shit in France. They just can't. Or, or like Germany. You you can't you can't pull that shit there. Like you can't do that. Yeah, because you can't fire them. They're not allowed to fire them, right? You can't fire them. On, on the other hand, you can't exploit them to that extent. You can't monitor them to that extent. You can't the, the kind of targets and like some of the reports we get about how much of a constant pressure there is to improve. So there are extremes in that case. Or even but there are extremes in this case as well where you know. People like go to the office and like start working at like 11 and then go for lunch break at like 12 and then come back at one and then work a couple hours and be like, oops, it's four o'clock now. And this is a real thing. <laughs> like this is a real thing. Like I, I used yeah, to have professors it's, it's... who used to talk about, we used to study business management in a global context and they used to talk about how different it is to work in a Swiss office versus a Singaporean office, for example. Like it's a lot more chilled out and. But one yeah. thing I'd say, though, before we try to move on to another topic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so I was kind of seeing this comment here more on an individual basis. How do you get individuals in your society to be more efficient and productive? And I was saying that when you have rich people or smart, intelligent people who create stuff, accumulate wealth, when you take that wealth away from them, you prevent them from allocating that wealth in ways that would lead to more innovation. For example, Elon Musk that started SpaceX, that started Neuralink, that started OpenAI, is what led to the AI revolution because he put his money into things that caused that spark in innovation that then now will bring income into America, that creates that creativity comes from smart people having access to their money to put into the economy in strategic ways other than just giving it back to the poor people who is going to use it for living, of course. But then that money doesn't get dedicated towards things that lead to innovation. And I think he's saying that the entitlement system takes away from the rich because he also um, talks about, you know, how the rich pay a lot more into the system than anyone else. And they're like, he's defending them in a kind of way, saying that they pay enough kind of in, in their share of the economy and that you should allow them to put their money into the system to get that dynamism going in a productive way. Again, the, I, I, I agree. Of course you can't. Yeah. If you, if you, if you, you know, 
rip them off for every last penny they have. Of course, they don't want to create anything new because they don't get to keep the disproportional benefits. But again, it is a negotiation between the inventor and the society in which they are doing it in. So it's about till what point can you plow back a bit of that so that you redistribute. And that is a negotiation every society has with itself. Because even for Elon Musk, it is it is not that he's like it's uh, Elon Musk is only one example. There are a lot of people who do a lot of creative stuff and it's not like all of them are paying zero taxes. So it's always a negotiation. Not all of the, none of them are like keeping all of it. They're still paying taxes in some way and they're giving back in some way. So every society negotiates for itself about how much it can keep. So just saying, letting the inventors just do it, just, you know, keep it all is, is not enough. It's not sufficient. There are a lot more factors that contribute. They need Elon Musk. Why didn't he, if he was such a genius, why didn't he just do it in South Africa? It's not, you need, you need a place like America where people are gathering, have been gathering for centuries, ambitious, talented people. And so there is something the society is giving and it names its price. But if you mm. want to do the same thing in China, it has a different price. It gives you something else. It has a different price. So it's all a negotiation. It's not like if you don't tax them, they'll be innovative. If you tax them, they won't. It's not quite that simple. I think it's also worth noting that Elon Musk, he was uh, considered an inventor or key creator in PayPal. But the following endeavors he's been participated in, as far as I know, he's just been an investor like that. The inventors had been working on the idea and had been building the company. And though investors are important, you know, important part of that piece of making a company successful, obviously funds and, you know, just the the collateral to build a company the size of Tesla or SpaceX or, you know, the boring company, these massive companies. But he wasn't an inventor in those companies. He was. Well, I heard that he actually read the books about how to build rocket ships. Like he had to literally oh, learn I believe that. the things himself. I think and he did in, his due diligence. Yeah. Even in Tesla. I mean, he did all the hiring. He interviews everyone. But he's not a founder in Tesla. He's not the founder. Martin Eberhard and uh, someone else. <laughs> he's not an inventor. He's not. He's an investor in Tesla. But I mean, he does the hiring. He owns Tesla. He owns Tesla, of course. But to, yeah. Yeah. It's not a Elon Musk specific discussion, but but basically the idea is yeah, yeah. Every society negotiates, and like, and a way we could like balance this out is like the opposite side of the spectrum, which is Korea, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> North Korea wild... specifically, <laughs> What's or like it, uh, North, North Korea, Korea specifically. Korea. Okay, yeah, right. like right. such a wild case study that the whole world can look at and be like. Ale- Sorry, Alejandro, did you have anything to say? Oh, to sorry, Alejandro, you had a point. Good. Okay, that's all right. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Well, sorry. I was just going to say, or yeah, Alejandro, will you open like North Korea for it? What are your initial thoughts? Like, <laughs> what, what is North Korea to you? <laughs> well, as you said, it's, it's quite an experiment to, to observe. Uh, I think, Likwan, you did say, or did picture it as a cult, kind of. Right, like they are living in a very specific cult-like society, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I feel that that's the expression of what we were talking about last week on China, right? Like how when we observe 
China and the United States uh, in terms of like China has this strong belief to the center, right? Like they believe in, they, they, they navigate center. the world and, and exactly like they go around their lives with that premise at the core. Um, I believe North Korea might be the extreme example of when a specific idea, I'm not saying they follow the same one, but I do think when you really keep at a core, a very specific belief or value, uh, you can go to extremes like the ones we're seeing in North Korea, in my opinion. Daniel, anything to say on North Korea, South Korea thing? What do you think about what's happening there? I don't have a lot of thoughts on it other than it made me like Google where the the Kim dynasty is at because um, I got really curious about like what's the next heir. Um, it says daughter. The, yeah, as as and that know. there's like a nephew that defected to the defected or was like a taken by the CIA. Like I um, hear she doesn't have a butthole either. <laughs> what? Yeah, they, they don't they don't defecate over there. The the, the, the family, they're like gods. They don't defecate. Oh wow! That's, That's what they say. I'm so sorry. That I was is, on mute. That because, is an like, interesting I'm, detail. It is so true, though. Like I've looked this up so many times because I'm fascinated. Like you think your leader doesn't have a butthole because he's too holy? Like this is some like really yeah. intense brainwashing. Like nothing cold, filthy right? comes out of them. So the whole family <laughs> has no buttholes. It's just it's a thing. They, they actually he actually carries his own toilet when he travels because because I I think one of the articles I read was that it is also like the thing that if they see that he has any particular disease or some weakness. They can use that to create internal turmoil if they can get those samples and like like prove that oh he is like you know in bad. I think health. this is similar with Putin too, but that's a whole other. But yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Like is, yeah. yeah, internal any sign of weakness and like the state will implode. So it's that kind of a thing. So they're like very very yeah protective of like <laughs> where they poop. I guess. I hear she doesn't have a butthole either. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> so ridiculous. There's no uh, other way Lee you Kanye can use that phrase without us. being a sexual reference, like except for in North Korea, <laughs> like. But um, yeah, Daniel, you the, were the saying, whole, yeah, yeah, go on, go. Yeah, so um, the the part about China using them as a buffer against America because America is in South Korea, they're kind of not nudging North Korea in the direction of being a part of the world because they want to keep them in that. I don't know. It's like it works as a good separation between themselves like buffer, yeah. and the American forces. That's, that's sad. That's sad. I think someone should rescue those people. I don't support invasions, but if I were <laughs> to support invasion, like I'd, <laughs> I'd, turn, I'd, turn, I'd look the other way. If you guys invaded like North Korea to, to show these people like guys, like, Ugh. I mean, there's so much in the world. You guys, Dude, it's, seriously it's, though, like, it's crazy though, the situation that those guys live in. If, if there's anything I've been very aware of these days after reading the book is like, you know, this book and these discussions we've been having, they have allowed me to, I guess, see 
the bigger picture of the world in specific details and start thinking of like, well, the history of humanity, we, if we see it through the eyes of, right, like these economic changes, historical changes, religious changes, um, it, is, it is a grand attempt, right? Like humanity is a great experiment on like, how do we coexist to each other and how do we survive, right? Like how do we, like trying to find ways, structure, systems um, that could allow us to, I guess, improve, you know, our lives sometimes is to preserve uh, power and sometimes that feeling of preservation of power or wanting to be like China, like the, the, the objective of being a superpower might also have to be with a little bit of what we discussed last week on the survival instinct, I guess. Uh, yeah. A lot of the same feeling is happening with North Korea. Like, whatever it is that they believe in, you know, like the family, the Kim uh, family, they are a big uh, threat in a way in terms of, like, nuclear power. Yeah. So anyways, I don't have yeah. really a point specifically on North Korea, but I'm just really... I guess observing how how much you know this book offers the perspective of you know what humans have attempted in the past and what they are attempting right now and how well or not and how's it going things um, <laughs> yeah how, how it is going yes yes, yes. how's it going um, I do have a question though I don't know um, the cat I make up you might have the like best insight on this but like it's freaking cold where they are where North Korea is in on North the, Korea. Um, in you know the global spectrum um what is their trade situation like how do they get food for their people i don't imagine that they, oh, they have don't. like a they long start. growing they don't, season they oh a lot of <laughs> it a say. lot of it is handouts a lot of it is foreign china they grow okay. some of course but the the hunger situation is quite dire <laughs> A lot of it is like support from china and uh, they some of their raw materials they sell to China and China actively buys. There is no Chinese embargo on them. So they sell to China and buy from China. So China doesn't ha like ever like have to listen to UN or like, so that situation is there. And there is a lot of Chinese handouts because keeping the regime going is important for China. Oh my God. There's one defensive strategy that stands out when I think about North Korea because they are <laughs> so backwards well like i say a, backwards maybe that's not fair but just a like a monument so... of a middle finger like that's their <laughs> well backwards. because they have I, I i guess backward i mean i don't want to make it out like it i think we can we can all agree like this is being led by you know a, a, a what do you call it like a monarchy or you know this family that has held power for so long like i can't i want to be careful like not to blame the north korean people for right. their own conditions, right? But absolutely. Um, but any like a, a defensive strategy that still boggles me is because they simply have not and will not, you know, incorporate modern technology. It's really hard to know what the fuck is going yeah. on, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You can't they hack into yeah. their. There's no nothing. No smartphone. No nothing. I, no, I, no I'll say yet. this though. So I haven't lived in Cuba for quite a few years. You go to Cuba. It's, I tell people it's like a time-traveling machine. You go back to the 1950s, they're about the architecture, the cars, the vehicles, the cars, the horse and buggy. 
it it, <laughs> it really is a is a traveling time, right? I would see North North Korea as being something like that, but not North 1950s, but like 1900s, like way way back. That's a, yeah. a deeper time travel that would probably happen there. Because in, like in Cuba, a... people have smartphones. You get a bit of technology here and there, and they, you know, they're, they're okay. But but it's not like you can like we're talking about a relatively small country of you know little to no economic consequence to larger global economy, right? It has massive nuclear power, and yet it's not like you can send a virus to hack their telecommunications to know like what they're thinking or right. Because no infrastructure like that exists. <laughs> yeah. The best we have is maybe satellites. Like, they're like, we don't have a computer that. for you to hack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything's just, yeah, well, just pen and paper. Well, like, well, well you can, you can translate the Morse code. I guess that's how they did probably <laughs> do their thing over there. But um, I'd say though that in terms of the, the okay. So just, I feel the same way about Cuba, that if Cuba was allowed to enter the global economy, that those people are extremely smart and in no time that country would blow up. I tell anyone that if Cuba opens up, I'm looking to buy land. I'm looking to buy a ton of crap because just based on their location and understanding the intelligence of the people there, I think the country would flourish. I'm very interested to see what would happen with the North Korean people if that country opens up. I think that they're probably very intelligent people, very hardworking people. But there's like uh, a... You know, you're saying that like technologically it's like the 1950s, but I feel like politically it's more like the, you know, 1500s that they have like a... Yeah, it's like a medieval... Like a monarchy that is like bordering on a deity. Um, And Truly. A deity that doesn't poop. Right. (laughs) Um, But then you have like a fallout of like how do people organize themselves? And so... um, you know, I think there would be a period of, of chaotic sort of, not even integration, but just like reorienting to the fact that I mean, the talk about an existential crisis is like, yeah, leaps and bounds ahead and what people can like choose what they want to do. And, um, you know, I think that put a VR headset on a North Korean civilian. Imagine like. It would be like going to in the space for them. Because yeah, there's I actually this project where to like step up the like my grandma was playing a computer before she died. Like we've had this whole like decades of time for it to be like, you know, if you put it in there, they're gonna think it's evil because it's so far from um, you know, like they the, probably the think we're aliens, lines. right? Like they precisely. have to. They would see us talking to each other through a screen and they'd be like, these are demons. Like, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> All right, uh, we should jump to, to another um, topic. Uh, Japan? I think, I think before, Japan. Before, we, before we jump, I, I think what I really, really appreciate about the book and about like Lee Kuan Yew in general is about how blunt he puts it. And he's like, yeah, yeah. China needs Korea to be there because we know... Uh, what America is capable of doing if if it wants to get involved in your politics and its army is quite strong. And if, if, if they have North Korea... In, of course, they want, America wants to get in everybody's politics, bro. Exactly. So it is... Right, so it is having a, the, like, unhinged, you know, schizophrenic brother, like, between the two, it works really well. Yeah. 
it, it, it really helps. It really helps. And because once you get to North Korea, if you get to the border, it's just it's just like a, you cross a river and it's like China. And it's such that level of access is is insane. And 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 for him to like just flat out say that, no beating around the bush, no be like, oh, it is a matter of it, there are complex things to think. No, no, he's like, you know. China wants it, it there really because well. the Americans can't get close. Yeah, it's like just, Wait. just clearly, just say it as it is. What was oh, it? The thirty-eighth parallel that separates. I just remember because the, the Korean War was so vicious that the like, United States arguably did not win it. It was like a right, yeah, like it. Some might think otherwise, but you know, it's like it was, Vietnam. That's why like, so, well, Vietnam, I would say, was even more of a su- success. Korea was like. And, and the people that fought in that war are like damaged in a different way. I think because it was like, yeah, it's a mess. We won't yeah. take are we, a uh, side trip, but yeah, the Vietnam Japan. thing, of course, we like. There's a greater uh, agreement that you know, America, you know, packed their bags and said, okay, you guys, you guys, yeah. <laughs> like this is not the terrain we are capable of fighting in, and, yeah. Yeah. Oh, without like okay. destroying so, everything. So I, I'll start the Japan, the Japan section. Okay. Yay! Yes! Yeah, because you get the <laughs> Let's fucking go! <laughs> All right, so beautiful country, great people. I mean, very clean, very proud. Great I mean, food. Great. Mm. I like their food. <laughs> 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 Come on, don't cool. do this. <laughs> Good food. Let's let's set let's let's meet in the middle. Good food. All right. And I'd say, okay. so for example, so of course, you know, these people have, I think they're second longest lifespan in the world, right? Mm. So when I kind of, I'm a bit judgmental about the food, of course, they don't use as much spices as us, us Caribbean right. people. Right, right. Almost nobody does. We are, we're, yeah, except okay. the so, Indians. So for me, except the Indians, perhaps. You know, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's, it's a different rating system. But um, <laughs> over there, you go to a pastry shop, right? And you get, buy like a donut with some jelly and stuff. And this thing is so bland. What they call sweet. Uh, oh, this is so sweet. They're, I'm like, bro, this is a bread shop. There ain't no pastry <laughs> shop, right? Stop it. <laughs> there is no sugar in here, right? <laughs> but that's because they just naturally consume a lot less sugar than other parts right. of the world except the, except right. all of the haribo candies that are <laughs> yeah well they do sell some western candies and some western drinks but i can tell you that overall they think everything is super sweet coming from the west and so they just have a less sugar intake and so my love of their food was you know in that defense again, Jamaica, everything Jamaica, is Jamaica. super sweet coming from the west maybe I'm not a fair judge then. I'm, I'm a biased judge. I'm not a fair. Sure. So I'd back out on the food part. But overall, um, though, I can say I lived in Japan for seven years and um, healthcare was decent. You would, okay, let's say I go to the dentist to clean my teeth. I would only pay about 2,000 yen. Let's call that 20, 10 to 15 US dollars, right? Oh, to, wow. to do a cleaning. But that's because your insurance covers about 90 to 95% of the cost of the procedure. So when I do the math to check what the real cost is to clean my teeth, we're talking about over 100 US dollars. Okay? Brutally expensive. for average American. Right. But the point is, 
when you have such okay, so I so when you work, I was paying about let's say four hundred or more U.S. dollars per month in just healthcare expenses alone, depending on where you live. So I lived in a place called what's it called? Okinawa, not Okinawa. It's called anyway. One of those places where there's a ton of old people that live there. The old people population was extremely <laughs> high. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> the, the, passage of the, the passage of this discussion has been, I lived there for seven years. There are a lot of old people and I forgot what the place is. <laughs> the <old people laughs> memory is not what is the problem here. <laughs> not enough sugar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so um, <laughs> these, the, mm. when I live in this era with, with of a lot more concentration of elderly people. It was hard to find a young person there. That state, call it a state, they call it province, but anyway, they were charging me something like 500 US per month. <laughs> it, not that much, but extreme, very, very high amount of healthcare expenses. No, not 30, just overall, what they take out of it. Oh, okay. It's like, right. an insur- like insurance. Right. It's super expensive. And so the national healthcare, a lot, they love it. They love their system. They're fine with it. But yeah. for me, someone who wants money to invest in a business and wants to be creative and do my own thing, I need that capital. And you're taking everything from me that I would dedicate towards my own progress. It was for me, it wasn't great. I didn't feel comfortable in that system. Good people, nice country. So it's good for some, but. Sounds like I you would agree question. with. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, it sounds like you would agree with Lee Kuan Yew saying that like Japan is strolling through mediocrity. They, well, the population part of it that he's referring to, that the, the, the low birth rate, because I think they have one of yeah, the lowest birth date, rates yeah. in the world, right? They have, they do. Yeah. It's horrible. What's the, what's the religious demographic uh, or religious um, constitution of Japan? Does they anybody co- know? Good question. They consider Could, themselves to be a not religious. What's that called? A religious. So that's, I will say that's probably because if you look at the U.S., Wait, like true? by by and large, the the women who are making up for the rest of us who have like zero to one children um, are you know doing it as part of you know a religious expectation yeah. um, whether it's Jewish or Christian that they're you know having children is part of like. The, your duty to to continue, um, you know, what God put you here to do. And so I think when you have a country that's both cosmopolitan, right, women have choices, and low religious affiliation, I, I think it's sort of a natural thing to be like, I don't actually want to have four children. Like, that's count me interesting. out. I mean, and, and to top it off, like the space limitations, right? <laughs> like, right. And I imagine the cost of living. Um, there, there's a lot of space, though, in terms of land area. In and, terms of land. Well, now they're paying, ways, I, I know they're giving stipends for young families to move into the country because that that is a, a big issue that they have, you know, almost exclusively geriatric populations in the more rural areas or even just the suburban areas. And also, it's not it's not exactly true that Japan is a religious, right? They they follow Shintoism and Shintoism Shinto the Shinto religion, and there a lot of them are like ardently Buddhist. So yeah, but the country themselves, I'm saying in general, they consider the country 
isn't did you live in a very country? urban area it isn't though? a dude huh? is a did you live in a very urban area because no, I lived in multiple are... different parts I, I moved from different places but i'm saying overall as a country I don't think they consider themselves as a Shinto religious or a okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. country. Yeah, yeah. The as country a national itself. identity, maybe not, but they right. they are religious people. Yeah, they have, and They're Christianity is growing over yeah. there too. Buddhism is is the the base one. I mean, they showed me all their rituals where you throw a coin to the god and pray for wealth, and I mean, it's it's interesting stuff. So I, I <laughs> but one of the things that I thought, you know, reading this, and, and I've had this thought before. You know, the the way that they seem to do everything at a 10, right? Whether it's like the t- like the teamwork, mm. the quality of production. And, and he touches on this, that like they're second to none in, you know, when they decide to do something, they do it to this exacting precision. Um, so I'll, what do I'll you think say leads to that? It was the war. They said that after the country was destroyed... Like the people kind of took it on themselves to say that we have to work hard. It's our job to rebuild the country. It's our, it's our fault why it was destroyed. And but so for the next generation, no, no, no. they kind of decided that they're going to work around the clock. I think well, it, it, so go, I, it, it goes far, far before that to... to yeah, because to I studied Lean Six Sigma, which is sort of, you know exactly sort of looking at it's been replaced mostly by agile in the workplace, but for in like the late eighties to like early two thousands, lean six Sigma was all the rage in corporations because of looking at like Toyota and how they literally like from ashes built this incredible, um, you know, super successful business. And like, what were the, what were the tenants that they did it by? And it's, you know, financial transparency and um, efficiency and product and all these different things. And so but other it, countries just, just also got like France was decimated by the war, like like really like not not new, from a nuclear standpoint, but also like that's why the social programs came out of Europe was like let's take care of our people. But it's a different. There's something else going on in Japan. There that is the the thing with many Eastern countries in general is that it's a spectrum. But there is a very strong level of acceptance about your stature in society or your stature in a system, which we will talk about more in the Indian context when, when we get there. But like caste? Yeah, a stature. Not, not particularly even yeah, your, your position in society. Because like even we, we talked in a previous episode about how like, uh, even uh, they talk about how when you... When you're learning how to make sushi, like for three years or something, they just make you like clean rice and like just make rice or or six years or something crazy. The the whole thing is six. But yeah, I imagine the first three is like, yeah. Yeah, the first years is just like you just do this and like there there is reputations. I think there is there is a larger part of the culture for a for a country to be decimated and behave like that. And especially even after the 2011 earthquake, uh, what Lee Kuan Yew talks about, about how they were not looting, but they picked themselves up. It yeah. takes a huge amount of cultural backdrop for them to react so after the war. So I think for a lot of Eastern cultures, there's a very specific understanding of, okay, if I have to get to this point, I have to do what has been done before. So there's this acceptance of, oh, everyone does this. 
this is the cultural norm so if i have to make sushi or if i may if i'm say making a katana like i learned this you know you bend the metal you fold it you beat it out you bend you fold it you beat it out and people have this very strong understanding of i am an apprentice and then i do this and then i become the master sort of thing and there are many countries like this which as a whole let the society decide these stages for them which is why it becomes very hard for them to be more entrepreneurial because you need to at 19 think you figured things out to be a mark zuckerberg that is not something that comes naturally to you when you belong to a place which respects you when you respect what comes before you so what happens in that kind of a scenario is that people who are already at the top tend to want to continue that because the status quo helps them the ones at the bottom have a lot more friction to do that because they just do not have the privilege to act upon it they uh, financially or whatever so what happens in this kind of scenario is that even for example the thing about japan there are many people now now things are changing there are many people who get into a company and then stick with that company because there's the thing of like the company loyalty of like you stay there your whole life so it is not very individualistic it's like even their strikes are like so chilled out like their strike <laughs> is like they'll wear like a black ribbon or something like that just to show that they are unhappy with the organization and also the leaders of course are sensible <laughs> enough to take to just take that and be like okay maybe we should make some changes this itself is a protest so that system of hierarchies and all of that makes it such that it is very hard to break out of it that is the reason you're like okay i don't want to try anything entrepreneurial because right out of college if i don't get into the best company possible i can't do it when i'm 35 so you just keep wait doing this over and over again what are again. you making an argument for you're making an argument for why they're not for what exactly is is okay so so the thing about the for, the process like, the, and about the honor i think that they There's also like the word honor comes up for me that that it's oh. honorable to be in this stage right now. Gary. Like, yeah. Ha, is honor haji is shame. And, it, and it's also a show on Netflix and I highly recommend it all about so, Japanese. So, you, so we're arguing about the reason why they work so hard and why they're so innovative. Is that And the why they're so culturally cohesive? Why after yeah. a natural disaster they helped each other out instead of fighting? Yeah, um, so I'm I'm going to I have a book Yeah, my specific Bushido that was on the list. It's about it's I called the soul of Japan, so I think that book will give uh, a more in-depth thing about why they are the way they are, as a people. And we could also But, reflect on previous episode, the uh, tale for the time being, right? Like just the idea of what suicide means in J- Japanese culture is is this betterment for something greater than me, right? Like my life is a part of the you know the greater society, and like. to to be a kamikaze fighter <laughs> is to be you know to give everything to your country and to your people like we don't really have that in the states i'm, I'm sure it exists we elsewhere we don't have but a like, single cultural identity i think the united states right. is a hard one to compare that to because it would be like racially oh, exactly. so diverse and um, japan was so closed off for so long like back when like feudal japan right. they had and, no outside contact like well into the 15th century like and like there's there's like a, the back side of that right just genetically um they have a much shallower gene pool i worked with the when i worked in primary research uh the guy who had the 
lab next to us was a Japanese, I don't think it was Japanese American. I think it was a Japanese person that was there doing research, but he was doing research on throat. The Japanese people have an overrepresentation of a really nasty throat cancer. Um, it almost doesn't really happen in other races. It's extremely rare, but it's like one of their top cancers. And it's sort of like there's some other things that, or just we'll say like some groups of Jewish people that um, yeah. Hasidic Jews that stay within mm. um, a very like small community because you, you don't marry outside of your, your race. And you also are sort of geographically isolated. Um, and so, you know, it's also, I just want to bring that up because it's interesting when you're, you know, sometimes it looks really romantic to have this, you know, these people that are so you unified, know, loyal and like, cohesive um but there's also like these other other sides of it so and something one i more love thing, about oh yeah one thing before we you know try to run on to india um so in terms of why it is that they work so hard of course they have the the thing called karoshi is that what you said i think karoshi, yeah, karoshi is, that's my overbook i was like i right. think you would know better than us yeah right. So Kuroshi, death by overwork, is a thing where people work so hard that they just die just at die. their decks or they die on their, way to ho- on their way from work on the train just due to pure exhaustion. Working there, teachers would tell me that they leave work like at 8 at night and they're back at work from like 6 in the morning. They don't have lives essentially. <laughs> that, oh, I mean, how do you even have a child? What do you do? And so, very interesting Family. culture. Yeah. But I mean, good people, and that's why even your kids probably still turn out well because the anime teach them a lot of morals. And <laughs> the, the, the teachers in school, um, watch Naruto, guys. Naruto is amazing. Don't watch Boruto. It sucks. No, we watch all of them. Even well, that's one thing I wanted to point out is like, we look at Japanese culture now as being like super cute, like fun anime, like Hello Kitty, like, right? Like really, just it's like commercialization, but like Japanese culture, you know, let's say a hundred years ago was vicious. Not even a hundred years ago, right? Like we're talking like pre Oh, let's get to Singapore. We'll talk about Japan's dark side. Messed Dude, up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. messed okay. up. We'll, we'll, India. Like, no, no, no. Hang on, hang on. We, uh, the, the I just thing, love the, that, like, people have this image of Japan, like, you know, like, being super cute. Yeah, like, hello, anime Kitty. Just, and like, yes. cosplay. Like, but, like, yeah. no, let me shove some bamboo shoots up your fingernails and, like, see how you, like, they, like, the torture well, tactics that the Japan Japanese people I use also are, think, like, like, brutal. Coming back, you know, I thought it was really interesting that, that this book did, like, validated um, or really like corroborated is probably a better word, the tale for a time being as far as like the displacement. Mm-hmm. Like if you are not like a Japanese in Japan, oh. you are not Japanese. Um, and this idea of coming back and being bullied and, you know, feeling not quite, you know, the mother like staring in front of the like tank, um, uh, you know, yeah. just like with, with, I'm here with, and not here. With that being said, I had fun in Japan. I didn't experience any significant racism. But you weren't born in Most, Japan and then left and then came back. I'm saying that they're true. harsh. They're harsher. Yeah, it seems like they're harsher on the people 
who think they're better, like who think there might be better opportunities outside of Japan and then yeah. come back. Well, put it this way. Put it this way. A Tale for a Time Being was a fictional story. I don't even know if I agree. Well, okay. I'm sure that there's some stigma. There's some truth in it. But maybe they've changed. To me, they seem like pretty nice people. And they treated everyone pretty nice in terms of other they're races, other than the Chinese. They don't like the Chinese very much, but let's, let's not talk about <laughs> it. But uh, they, they treated people well. I think they're, I don't know. So that's my, you know, anecdotal perspective, right? Yeah. And I think like, the more the more they have technology, sorry, like the more communication there is, the world start you know, like any country will start to I guess transform those beliefs and transform those maybe, you know, hopefully. Like maybe this is what happened to Korea right now. Like the fact that they don't have access to all these um outside world influence that you know it may be coming on you through a phone. Uh, it's a reason why, you know, like the the imposition of specific tenets and beliefs are still powerful enough to control a whole country. Um, but anyways, that's my whole contribution. Sorry. I just, I just, <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's my whole contribution. Yeah. <laughs> I just have a couple of things. To answer the question, the, the very much earlier question of the point I was trying to make about why I was talking about the hierarchy and all that. It was the answer. It was to answer the question about why they are so regimental and process, and why they are accepting of it to the point of torture, to the point of like, like karoshi and like all this. Like this is this is my this is my this is where I am. This is my station, and not doing it is shame. Sort of a. It's it's obviously it's an it's 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 on the extreme end of that, but that is like what. What I really, really like is this, this, I bring this up because it will be very relevant when we uh, go to Singapore. The idea that you give a populace, I mean, it's, it's not yours to give, but, but like, but like whatever you, you, you don't hinder a populace's freedom of, you know, economic growth and all of this, but then because it becomes such a competitive place, people are working and, you know, doing all these things and it becomes very expensive to have a child and all these other things. And the, the very conflict that you do not want to integrate because it's a very fragile system. This is not a system that has been open to having immigrants and it's not anytime really going to change. And at the same time, it is already very clear that it is in a very, very bad state because it's not having enough children. The fact that that is such a hard conundrum to solve, like your society is not immediately going to change and say, you know what, we like brown people. Maybe we should let some Indians in. That is not happening. <laughs> we just don't look like them. Like Indians by far, I mean, Indians inside India are a different thing. But like the, the ones we export, you know, <laughs> above average quality is all, I, <laughs> is all I'm saying. Okay. Very good at tech, you know. <laughs> <laughs> very socially cohesive no. the worst of us we keep the you know the better ones we let go <laughs> to other countries like even for someone with a track record like that from countries like that they're not willing to integrate like that is not happening and at the same time when your society is that traditional one of the aspects of being traditional comes from you live closer to where you are from and you create families there and that tribe sort of helps you with 
your social well-being, your psychological well-being and all of this. Now you have a traditional society where it gets modern and you're separate and you're living by yourself and like there are all these expenses, but you're not having children. And then like it, it almost gave me a headache to just think about this is such a dire problem that they find themselves in. This is not an easy one to walk out of. And like, just what, what did you guys think about that, about the whole children thing? Because that's like a common thing that keeps coming up again and again in the book. We can, we can discuss that when are, we get to, let's discuss that when we get to Singapore, because I think they have a similar problem. Yeah. Singapore's... India the, doesn't, the, so we'll have to wait. We have to pause that conversation until we get to <laughs> India, India doesn't. Yeah, India, yeah. Okay, I guess we could talk about India and then explore this in detail when we come to Singapore. Bring this to contrast Singapore's uh, problem. Go ahead. So lead the way on India. India? Oh, we're great. I mean, (laughs) no, no, we're not. (laughs) Send help. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I, you know, know, my, as my accent suggests, uh, I geographically am located in India. Yeah. You have a question? question. Will India become the next China? That's what I want to know. I want to know if I should invest. Uh, that that depends on what you mean by China, the next China, the next industrial manufacturing powerhouse in the world, the next economy that will be the production hub and uh, you know gain wealth mm. from doing so. Yeah, I think I think India had a very uh, they had a potential, a, a, a really strong. India had a very good potential, a very strong potential. Where we really messed up was we had many talented young people. And the the best of the best, of course, you know, go to United, like all foreign countries, which is, which is you know, bound to happen when your country does not have that standard of living. But where India really messed up and where we really sort of missed a golden chance is that over the last 10 years, if we had changed education to a point where people could actually get valuable degrees. Like what has happened is that everyone looked at the success of American uh, Indians in America. And then they're like, okay, we should all do engineering. And then there are like so many engineers with like useless engineering degrees. Like if that, it doesn't matter whether they're a mechanical engineer, civil engineer, it doesn't matter. It like, it doesn't actually teach them how to do that particular discipline. And there are so many lakhs of these youth. Yeah. So if you looked at the demographic chart for Indians, there's a huge bulge in the 16 to 25 demographic. And if we had educated these Indians to be able to take up service sector jobs or something that just didn't create a bit of debt for them and actually was useful, the youth would have made so much money that we would have had a real chance what do you mean by China service on the economic sector? Front. What do you mean by service, service sector? sector? Service sector jobs, as in even to just be a, a more, uh, not maybe not service. Mm. Service sector jobs are all like whatever India is already doing, being the back end of, of like banking corporations or uh, doing a lot of like testing. And there are a lot of things you could be doing for, yeah, for companies. But, but right? like, I think, so for example, yeah. Indians in America, they do just STEM. I mean, when you look at the chart, they have a whole graph of what everybody studies by different races. And all the yeah. Indians, are just, they're just 
piled up in the STEM category. That's all that they yeah. wanted. Well, they, yeah. they do a little bit of business management too, which I don't know what that's about. But anyway. And they have the highest household income in all of America. By far. By far. 119,000 oh. per oh, household. Those yeah, they are but, the elite, right? That's a different equation. But what I'm saying is that field of STEM, science, yeah. technology, mathematics, and whatever the other one is. Engineering, engineering and mathematics. So I think the problem is that you have the same problem that Cuba has. Cuba has so many universities that teach medicine. And so Cuba, whenever there's a disaster anywhere in the world, they send doctors all over the world. I don't know if you've seen that before. But if you check an earthquake, any event that happens, Cuba sends thousands of over doctors supply. to help. Because they have so many doctors. But when I'm in Cuba, these doctors are out on the streets begging you to come in and get a checkup. Like, what's that on your face? Come, let me have a look at them. Please, just like, give me a break. <laughs> so it's like, it's not that doctors is a poor career. It's just that you have an overproduction of doctors. And so the competition between doctors drives wages down so hard in that specific field that it, it's... Oh, it, that's you know, not you, the case train too uh, much of in it. India. But yeah, I'm saying that th- is... those, those, those mm. people in India who does STEM, if they were supposed to leave India and go to any other country, that, for example, Jamaica or somewhere that does not train engineers, they'd be very highly paid okay. people. There's a, there's, a, there's a main difference. The main difference is... I am assuming for the hope of all of humanity that the Cuban medical system doesn't function like the Indian engineering education system because they'd be killing people left and right. Because the, because the engineering colleges here, the, the deeper story is this. So uh, at least the medical system is supposed to be a bit more rigorous and like hands-on, right? The engineering degrees that started, you know, engineering colleges that started popping up are like politicians with extra money or just businessmen with extra land. They're like, you know, what what should we do? Just build an engineering college kind of a thing. Because there was almost this mania of everyone looking at the Indians, especially in America, do well and creating this funnel. That is why you have so many Indians at the head of tech companies. That just doesn't happen. It is a whole nation madly pursuing it and like a 0.1% doing well and leaving. So all the other engineering degrees, they come out not even as functional engineers. Like they are not capable of working in that profession. If you actually call them and give them a job, if a mechanical engineer is supposed to do a job of a mechanical engineer, they are not capable because these educational institutions are not rigorous enough for them to actually count as what engineers. What percentage of these institutions you think are bad? A good enough percentage? Because whenever I go, I hire people on Fiverr to do work on my website or different places. I know people yeah. who use Fiverr. I know people who use Upwork. These are very big platforms where you can hire engineers. Bro, it's yeah. all Indians and Pakistanis over there. So, I mean, you guys are, there's something happening where they, yeah. they, you are producing people who can deliver work on a global scale. But again, you have to understand what India's population is. A small percentage. Yeah. It's going to look like, like it's a whole lot. I get yeah. what you're saying too. I mean, so, even, so? To, even to set up a platform and be able to talk to a foreign client where they don't freak out by your lack of professionalism, you need a certain level of education. Because Indians being able to speak English 
and being able to speak english in a professional context where it doesn't look like they don't know what they're talking about are very different things so this is like they may be the lower end of the creme de la creme but they are still somewhere there so all these people that you see on upwork and fiverr and all of that daniel you had a point yeah i was just going to say <clears throat> you know it's also interesting because standards are so different in different countries like and it's not just like i was thinking about medicine like in the us lots of people who are doctors in other countries that doesn't transfer and they end up being nurses because those credentials are not viewed as equally and it's exactly. not just the us like i had a friend um who's father was an ophthalmologist um in hong kong like a, a medical doctor not an optometrist who just has glasses like a real like eye doctor and they moved to australia he ended up driving a forklift um because like oh, no. that those credentials didn't transfer and in you know by the time you have children and you're trying to do something to better your children's lives you you're not going to go back to school and like play their game and get their version of it um so i do think also think it's really interesting um that piece and then there's also this great youtube video i'll try to find it and send it um so we can put the link that talks about this it's like the guy uses a or maybe it's a woman i'm not sure i haven't watched it in a long time but a gumball machine to represent what happens when you take like the best out and send them to namely like american universities and then they don't come back um and mm -hmm. like does this really great sort of representation of of the dilutional effect that that has on on a country's intellectual capacity um it, it's, it's that returning piece that i think we can see in a lot of different countries um especially uh, africa yeah yeah maybe that's the difference Agreed. between china and india then maybe that what is known as brain drain when your highly skilled people leave your leave your country Maybe yeah. the fact that the most skilled people are leaving and not coming back, which is, I mean, I, 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 I think that that's kind of disputable. Are they not even investing back in India? Are they not actually doing anything back on the ground from where they're coming from? I don't I know mean, what that's about. I guess they send money back and buy property, but that is not the same thing as investing, really. They don't invest We're entrepreneurially because... Teach. Yeah. Like well, that's good. That's that that means that they're actually passing their knowledge on to the next generation, and that builds. Are more they coming back skills. to teach? I don't know about that. No, I said I said they're. It's not the same as coming back to teach when you. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not because land. because if you come back and set something up entrepreneurially, that's a different thing. But why would you? You're living somewhere in California. Yeah. Google oh. is throwing stacks of you know wads of dollars at you. There's no There's reason for you. Just patriotism. Oh, no. if only the world worked like that like if only right. it's just like corporations like you're gonna go where you get the best deal it's all a negotiation even on the individual level i mm. don't know i think emotion i think individuals are more emotional than corporations corporations have a specific mandate individuals we do sure. things for different reasons and even me and jamaica i mean I, I didn't have to come back to jamaica but you know your family's here you know people here and you kind of, it's, it's, it's slightly different to me. I don't see how you could completely cut off a country and not even reinvest or anything at all. I, I don't oh, know. It also has I, to specifically do with, if they wanted to set up that kind of business here, the business atmosphere is not that easy. It's right. not that simple. And it's a lot more complex. 
And once you're okay with and your introduction out of college is like, you know, these companies paying you so much and then you sending back money to your family and suddenly your family's stature moves because you're making money in dollars. Guys, I worked in synthesis for six months and like was a TA and that itself changed things for me. Like this stuff me is too. serious business. <laughs> like too. it's not like I literally like, you know, started by like, like found enough of a buffer to like start my own company. I got myself a motorcycle, moved out to a different city. And like, so there is a lot that it does for you. So, and now, even now when I'm trying to create a business, what I'm trying to do is to cater to Singapore and American audiences. Like, because trying to actually like, I mean, I was running a school, but to do that, there's a lot more friction in the system. So when you like me study in Singapore or like, uh, uh, like many people, you know, work in America and then you realize, oh, my talent could be rewarded in this way. And then you come back and then you see what is available. And then you're like, you know what, this doesn't, this yeah. doesn't look like it's going to be worth it. And yeah, it's just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly blame them, but the, the problem is right. that even, even the IITs and IIMs and all of these places that provide the education, but I guess, I don't know how far subsidized these institutions are. I sort of believe that if they are any, even if part of it is subsidized, there should be something uh, similar to what Singapore had, where like, if they subsidized your education to an extent, you'd have to write like a three-year contract that you would stay and work in Singapore. So something so, like um, that could help. I support India. I want. <laughs> Thank you, Donovan. I have to whisper this part. <laughs> <laughs> this part is saying, I would love, I would love for India to blow up and become the next global superpower in the world. I mean, that's why I'm so comfortable with our podcast having so many Indian listeners and all of this. I believe that <laughs> it's it's worth investing in now because yeah. in the future. I mean, it may become the dominant market. And if we have an established podcast in the India section, I mean, that'd be good. So, you know, that's, that's how I think. So, so, so my okay, advice, I have some advice for, 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 India. for India. I have okay. some advice. <laughs> 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 this is going to be right. great, okay? <laughs> we can, can fact check. Can I have some advice for this India. This is going to yes. go viral okay. on TikTok, so <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so, so this is it now. 50% of... India's population still works in agriculture. What the hell are y'all doing though? Like someone needs to take their money and start investing in machinery. Period. You have to get that 50% down to at least 15 to 20% in the next 10 years. Everything, America produces some of the most things in the world, like food and everything. Yeah, and like 95%. Ninety-five percent is done by machines on these farms. Someone needs to take it up. Someone needs to invest only in agricultural machinery and get that fifty percent down. Those people can be re relocated to other parts, other sectors of society, and things has to change from there. So that's number one advice. Vikat, any pushback on that? What's the problem with that? Oh, how many do you want? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So next. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing no, is Wait, that... you asked if I have pushback. <laughs> oh, you were going to respond? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. We have to do it quickly, so... though, because there's quite a few. <laughs> I'm so sorry if my 
if my country doesn't have time, you don't have time for my country donovan but no no yeah so so basically the mechanization thing i mean of course there's some value to saying you know you mechanize it and all of that but it's not that simple because a lot of the farmers are sharecroppers and they have very little fields so agriculture doesn't work the way you think like you know there are like ranches you know the like these huge plots of land they have like a small yeah. us parking lot size land is shared by like 20 people <laughs> so well, so then, these are these okay. small land holdings so and I'll another my thing that would yes, one man okay. needs to buy all those farms buy all <laughs> of the land I, yeah yeah and i know that is where you were going and that's going to be yeah, done yeah. that is you know i'm going to respond to that. that as well so <laughs> The, the thing is that a lot of though life is like hard for these people for people who are in agriculture and all of that part of what makes life all right and you don't have to like compare and feel bad is because you're living in communities which are complete at least for some parts of the population i'm not claiming you know village life is great everywhere that is not what i'm trying to say but plucking them out of agricultural labor just lands them into like construction labor or something else in a city where they live in a slum which is like that's way okay. worse sometimes than like that, that's how all in that's how all countries industrialize there's always a period where people are pushed out of the farms into the ah. cities and it takes some time for them to adapt but they will so it's it's a part of the process so don't don't well, worry I have a, I have a question on that <laughs> don't worry about it As, what the heck? Are, yeah, is, it, yeah, that, yeah it will work itself out Are some of the castes agrarian based? Like, is leaving a farm an option, or is there? Um, I don't understand the caste system uh, at all. But um, I did read, like, I was reading some a, a caste that it said uh, these are agrarian people, and I was wondering if, like, that indicates that the non mobility has to do with occup like a trade. Yeah, there there is a there is there is a lot of inbuilt uh, non mobility based on the caste system because not because. technically it is not allowed but it tends to be that the land tilling class and the land owning class are not the same sometimes so if you are in a certain state you might own a lot of the land but the actual people tilling on it are different so it has to do with what level of economic uh, flexibility you have so that is very much uh, constrained because of the resources you have so you might want to do something else but like you might have started you know tilling the land when you're like 13 or 14 or you know or doing some some other smaller works so you are not you you do not have a skill set flexible enough to move into a different uh, thing especially you're because you're in a very agrarian society everything revolves around the agricultural output and there is like a mill owner who makes flour out of it or something like that so it still ends up being very much labor based and all of that so when people have been in a certain caste for a long time they do not have the assets or the backing or like the the cushion to like go study and that there, there are multiple things like that so it's not as simple as oh because you were born in this you can't do anything else it's not explicit like that but it ends up being so unfortunately for many okay all right moving on to the next next thing now so i heard india was big <laughs> in the whole communist thing back in the day um I hear in 1971 this back in the day. Okay, they signed a treaty with the Indo-Soviet Treaty and yeah. um most of the big corporations were nationalized and stuff. And I heard that yeah. even since recently they had a thing called a licensing raj where to start yeah. a business you had to get approved by like eight different 
government institutions or something like that. But the red tape was crazy to start and run your own business, right? Some of those policies are still in place. When they got bailed out by the IMF in 1991, the IMF did... Advise them to deregulate some amount, which is what, which is when the Indian population started to boom and the the big growth started of the population. So I would they say did that deregulate a bit. They did in, a little okay, under okay. the Washington Consensus that was implemented oh, by bit, the yeah, IMF. Quite a bit. So I would say that there still apparently needs to be a lot more deregulation happening because I hear a lot of the main banks over in India are still run by the government. A lot of the big industries are still controlled by the government. If that changes, I believe that that would bring more efficiency to the system. And that might be something that's necessary too. Why do you think, I mean, private banks are allowed to come up. Why do you think the government banks have to go away for the private sector to flourish? Well, if you deregulate and allow the private banks to grow as they do, I believe the private banks will outcompete. No, the, the private banks, banks are allowed to do what they want to do under central bank regulations. Like it's not like okay, you can't. Okay, well, I guess I think there's guess, maybe an assumption that government banks are, you know, just bureaucratic, more red tape, more difficult to work. And with. it requires so I think, taking money from society and then giving it to the government to pay these people instead of it being done through the free market. That would do it more efficiently. That would fire the lazy people and keep the productive people and organize things a bit more. I mean, who knows? But I'm always against government stuff, so I won't I have dwell too much. I have a question, Vikyat. What's the this yeah. sort of like balance of power between? Because I know it's quite one of the things he touches on in the book is how fractured um, the communities are, and we've touched on this in previous episodes as well. It's sort of the north versus south um, thing. Like, what what's the local resource empowerment like politically versus like? India as a country. Ah, oh, 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 oh my God. Okay. Okay. This one's a it, bit, it feels okay. like this is like part of the limitation, right? That he is noticing with India and why, like, despite the population being on its side, it, it may not have the ability to collectively rise up um, into a global, a sort of a place of global power. Yeah, so that there's there's yeah there's a lot there because the, the the thing is there are the constitution clearly talks about which duties are left to the center and which duties are left to the state, but what happens with a lot of uh, taxation, for example, when we're talking about resources in government, the main main issue is tax taxation. Is one of the things that happens is. The government collects taxes from a lot of uh, from a lot of the surplus states, like Tamil Nadu, for example. It is like it has almost almost always been a surplus state, which is where I stay, Chennai. But then and then there are there are deficit states, so there is some tension there because it's like the uh, recently there was this uh, a couple uh, uh, members of parliament from Kerala and Tamil Nadu, which are both in the south of India, were talking, and then they they were talking about. We don't regret that it is being given, but the main regret is that it is being wasted in many of these other states. Because say there is there's a there's a very, very particular state which is like there's a lot of there's a huge uh, uh, concentration of uh, a Hindu nationalist party there, and like the it it also happens to be very efficient in in many ways. So when a lot of 
and every time the central government keeps pushing funds into that what starts happening is the resource allocation and that gets a bit messy but also again the same thing that likwani says that there is no single united front because states want to keep their powers and as a south indian i mean we we as a people tend to like not want to like just hand over power to the center we are very like we're a bit yeah we're a bit feisty i guess that's because <laughs> the government is corrupt i hear the corrupt there's pretty corrupt government is there too so. it 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 is pretty corrupt why give more but power? we are like why give more power to those people no no that's the thing that's that's the interesting part of the problem the the problem is that it's not just the central government that's corrupt the state government is corrupt as well but we are like <laughs> our corruption we will do <laughs> like you don't have to do it. <laughs> you don't have to do it for we us we do corruption better than you do <laughs> yeah so like our priorities because there is also like fear of cultural imposition of like uh, about in certain places like kerala there's like environmental concerns because they don't want to industrialize too much kerala as a state like they have a their education level basic education level is like very high their sex ratio is like it's great uh, the male to female ratio is quite great uh, but they are like they have like very strong unions so if they let central influence come in like they want to like they'd be like oh this industry is good for you blah 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 you know the regular argument of like if industry comes you will all be better no questions asked they don't buy that and so every south indian state has one such personality and we like a very we protect that and that is the reason even when there is a national party sweeping elections we don't have that party controlling stuff here so likonius kind of right in that there are these various cultures it's the same thing with the european union thing which is what i was saying right britain put us all within this boundary of this is what india means i mean there were part points in history when all these parts were india but this is still a very colonial construct to a, to a great extent especially south india being the same with like jammu and kashmir and like delhi and all these places which are so far off and like chennai was was like if you looked at history it wasn't for a long time as as part of the same kingdom so it becomes very hard to uh, come to to unify and to and to come to a consensus on okay this is what we are all going to do and because it's it's way too big it's huge the country is huge and okay. you know very complex so, histories very different histories yeah before we move on to singapore last thing that i have to to suggest now last thing so i hear that there's a very big gray market in india where there's a ton of people who work kind of outside the system it's on the government is unable to tax these people because they just have their little small businesses in this informal state um I hear that a lot of the call centers they don't even want to work for the call centers they don't want to work for foreign companies because they don't have bank accounts because that's not how they do things kind of they do, the the government taxes market. the government taxes is so high that they don't even want to work for some of these international companies so that the government can tax them kind of thing I think that there's a way to trap these people where you can make policies where you lower taxes allow them to take these foreign jobs get them in the call centers or to wherever get them into the workforce and then slowly raise the taxes over time okay but i understand that a very large i mean i think the number is close to 50% of the population exists outside of where the government them? can tax them what's that why would i don't understand what would keep them there if they you know let's just focus on the call center you know like 
I think this gray market, I would describe it as like underneath the table, like getting paid kind of on the sly, right? right. Like, um, but you avoid you taxes, know, which is you which avoid works taxes. for some people. Yeah. And, you know, okay, let's say taxes get lowered. They enter the call center or whatever corporation right. and then take taxes rise again over time, you know, let's say 10 over years time. or whatever. Right. Um, why would they not just exit and go back to the gray market? Once, once you break down these gray market companies are in business, it's a lot harder to start afterwards, I believe. So I think once you get them in there, you get them to establish a bank account, you get them on record, you can account for each head, each person. It organizes things a bit more and then that's how you trap them. So. The, main, the, main, the main concern I have with this is for people in the gray market, okay, this is, this is quite murky and this is probably... Probably partly sentimental of me to support the ones in the gray market. But the, 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 the main uh, problem is in a country and a system that is that has a lot of flaws and there's a lot of corruption, the people in the gray market, like the ones who are really big, are still getting away with a lot of, they are getting away with murder. Like, so when you crack down on the gray market, I feel like... It's just that you just have to be really big to be able to like uh, get all all benefits through the back door. I mean, yes, ideally down the road, I guess there should not be a gray market and all of that. But most of these people that, that are doing these small businesses don't even come within the tax bracket, even if you account for it. So when a system is this messed up, I am I am a little worried about, you know, getting them under the purview of the government who will just exploit them further for the benefit of their corporate bosses. And you know, I, I, I agree like, with you. I don't trust <laughs> I businesses agree. a lot. It's going to be bad for a while, but you have to get these people into the economy. You have to get them in the system. They have to get bank accounts and then you figure things out from there. So that's a part of the reason why I think the government is so corrupt is because there's <clears throat> reason for people to corrupt the politicians. These big gray market companies, how they stay in business that they have to be paying someone else off. Because if I'm a politician and I know you're working outside the boundaries of the law, you got to pay me some money for me to leave you alone. And so that creates this cycle of corruption in the country. And there's no way forward. I don't think that's quite right. I don't think that's quite right. I think the two are related. Like, I'd be curious, you know, not just India, but looking anywhere, like if the level of corruption in whatever country it correlates with this level of gray market. Like people are purposely trying to work outside the government because they know their money's not going to go towards, you know, the betterment of society or public goods or whatever, you know, I, I, it's just a theoretical question. Like if there's a correlation between corruption in a government and the, the activity of a gray market. In a I believe country. that there will be a correlation, right? Yeah. No, in America, yes. Companies still, pay politicians but that tends to be the bigger companies who benefit from like train tra changing trade policies or like immigration policies those are the right. larger corporations but mom and pop Dude. stores have no reason to pay politicians really not really what is it the nra but, that's one of the biggest lobbyists in our in the in the system the right. national rifle so association they have a reason too because government controls the gun access to guns and stuff like that so i'm saying when you have these smaller stores now who are working on the fringes of the legal system of the of where you know of being 
illegal. But isn't that too also kind business. of corrupt? Like, if you can buy your politicians, is that not? Yeah, but I'm saying that's a if, corrupt. If those businesses didn't exist, they wouldn't have a reason. Those smaller businesses wouldn't have a reason to want to buy a politician. You understand? And so by getting them into the normal system, you lessen the corruption that is given, the, the money that's paid to politicians. You lessen it's a the chicken reason. egg situation, I guess. Like what has to come first? Like less corruption and more people are going to participate in the government? No, or- corruption comes from people wanting to corrupt politicians. And that's why my, my, my genius Ayn Rand suggested separating government from economics. Because if the government officials can't do anything for you, let's say that they don't hand out money paid to corporations, they don't affect policies that benefit you, well, then companies have no reason to corrupt politicians. That's how you get money out of politics, by getting politics out of money. So that's what comes first. Money but, will always be political, though. I don't know. I can't see the two being separated, but I, it's, I like the theory. We'll have to Yeah, we missed another that. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but there's also but we're like, up India soon. The, Last comment on India. <laughs> yeah, like like my whole contention with the my only counter argument to the corruption exists because of the gray market thing is that the ones who are causing a lot of the corruption now are like people who want the irrigation projects or the infrastructure projects and you know the huge government projects which get a lot of money and then they kick back money to the government. It is not right. the gray market, guys. So, uh, so the gray market is just, is just unregistered. It's not illegal. It's like very different. So these are people like mom and pop shops and all of that. That is all okay. like the gray market. So it's okay. not, that so, is what gray so market means. So it's you're not, saying that they're not illegal. That means that the, they don't really have a reason to bribe politicians then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like people because selling you groceries. Criminal. Yeah, they just do everything you. cash. That's why they don't have... So there is greater but the fa- the potential fact that you, for people. You aren't paying taxes, though. Oh, it's many like, of them. See, many of them don't even come within the bracket to start with. But but yes, there are there is the tax concern. Yeah, that is a different equation because there are some there of them. Some, do, regular, some of them fall well within the bracket. Some of them are doing pretty well, as you said. There are some big ones. Yeah, there are, there are some big ones. There are some big ones which do like all cash transactions and like they skimp on taxes. But yeah, in some, for some, it just, I'm just worried it'll become so prohibitively such a headache that even the thriving organized sector will have to start giving bribes because the system is so inefficient that like Abhijit Banerjee, the economist talks about this. He talks about a certain part of corruption is not only endemic, it is almost necessary because in very inefficient systems, that is how you like lubricate it to happen faster. Yeah. And if all of these things come under the gamut of what the government controls, then even there to like get approvals or whatever, they'll start a system about like, oh, to have a grocery store, you need to have like this bank account and register and blah, blah, blah. And Donovan, I thought I'm you would so be like, like pro about... market. I'm just realizing like... now that I, I'm realizing that I'm on the wrong horse right here. As we can't yeah, yeah. talking, I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm like... I am I the donor of this episode. Like, yeah, like this is this. I'm not. I'm yeah. not in favor of bringing thriving, competitive companies into government inefficient yeah. systems. Like, I, I, I bought the wrong horse in this one. So yeah, I'll forget yeah, about it. So, 
Forget so, about it. Forget about, forget about it. it. <laughs> yeah. So, Vicky, we know that you went to school in Singapore. You finished your bachelor's. Um, and one of the my big takeaways from the book was like this. I don't know. It's a balancing act of like both integrating a bunch of different cultures and ethnic groups, but at the same time being pretty stringent on. I don't know. It's like a level of decorum or not decorum. That's not the right word, but like, um, I don't know its own kind of interpersonal relationships, right? Like Singapore, I think has this way of acting and being that, I don't know, maybe unites or connects all these different groups. How did you feel that as a student coming from India? I know that. So one thing that is immediately visible in Singapore uh, when you when you live there and when you visit there is that it's very cosmopolitan. I mean, of course, it's not cosmopolitan like say maybe New York is cosmopolitan, but it is very cosmopolitan when you look at it from like all the different kinds of Asians there are, and of course there are Europeans and Americans and uh, to a great extent all these uh, European and American expats and their families that live there. So it is very cosmopolitan and. What is very interesting about Singapore in this regard is that all this has been achieved in the last 50, 60 years. Like, it was not like it has had a history like America of like, oh, people have forever been just arriving at these shores and this has been the place to be. But no, this happened in the last 50, 60 years. Singapore said, we are going to make an effort to make this such a place that we attract all these different kinds of talent here and make this that kind of a place and that is the reason and singapore has also the government has also had a sense of okay let's not let one particular part of the population or one particular community especially with their housing development board flats and all of that let's make sure that they are allotted in such a way that one community does not overly aggregate in one point and then you know mingling becomes hard so there has been a very focused effort on part of the government to make sure to make sure that this cosmopolitan Wait. reality has been possible. Sir, you're saying that they, when they bring in the immigrants, they try to put them in locations around the country, in like separate, small, like to divide them among the people so that they blend in instead of forming like their own group, like this big... So, yeah, you know, like, yeah I, I, okay. I don't know how exactly it is carried out. Like, what is the precise method by which they make sure that the over-concentration doesn't happen? But I just know that, like, if you're an Indian and your owner has to be, uh, has to be flat, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's as simple as, oh, I want to sell this to a Chinese person. I think, I, th I think there are some controls around that. I don't know how exactly it is carried out. But there has... Uh, so, and, and I also don't understand how, if, if that is what they were doing, how they would make sure the, the market value for certain parts and, you know, are not worsened because of it. But there are, uh, the, there are plans in place to make sure there is not that aggregation. And, and also uh, if you, if you look at, if you look at Singapore's history, like all the way back uh, in the 1800s and all that, there was this, there was this, uh, the Jackson plan, I believe it was called where there was all this uh, division of, uh, uh, under Britain, there was the division of, oh, this is the fancier place where the British live. This is the place where the Chinese live. This is where the Malays live and all of that. And this kind of aggregation, uh, you know, led to a lot of rioting and all that down the line. So there has been an effort to make sure the 
population is cohesive and lives amongst each other. That's uh, that's an interesting strategy to promote assimilation. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think once a group comes in and they're able to form their own community, well, then they don't have to buy into the, you know, the, the morals and the the culture of the society in which they live in. So that's that's definitely a good idea. I love to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think it is regulated in the private uh, condominiums, but in the housing development board uh, flat, there are definitely measures in place. It's it's the city that is so well. Uh, when you look at it, you understand very soon that it's a city that is so well curated. All aspects of the city are so well curated, and that means that it is this amazing city which which this very intricate city, which is held together behind the scenes by a thousand strings. It is a fine work of art, really. And what it takes to keep this running is all this kind of effort into the detail. And and there are a lot of measures in place, right? There are all these rules. There are, there are fines for a lot of the things wherever you go. There are instructions, don't do this, don't do that. If you do that, there's a $150 fine. If you do this, there's a $1,000 fine. Uh, you know, don't bring that smelly fruit onto the bus. And, you know, there's, there's, this, there's this fruit called the durian, which many, uh, many Singaporeans like it. So that, you're not allowed to bring that onto the bus because it'll, oh, like, stick yeah. up the whole bus. And there's a, there's a specific site specifically that says don't bring durians on board because it's such a <laughs> cultural favorite there. A, uh, a big one for me that I think I just kind of grew up learning, or maybe I learned it from my uncle, but... Um... Like gum is illegal, or at least was illegal. Like you can. It still is. It still is. Still is. Yeah. Um, it always ends up in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It still is. It still is. I mean, I mean, yeah. It always finds itself in the wrong places. Is one and like I mean, if they caught you at the border with a pack of gum for personal consumption, you'd probably be fine. But if you had a significant amount which you could potentially resell, then you'd definitely be in trouble. Yeah, it's it's funny when I was fine. talking to Adam, I have like zero knowledge of Singapore and this book was so interesting and made me really curious. And I was like, did you know that singing, you know, I was like talking up how amazing Singapore was. And he was like, you know, they cane people for littering there. <laughs> I was like, what? And so <laughs> I was, he was like, that's, that's how they keep it really pretty and in order. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, I don't know if you, if they would, uh, uh, Cane you for littering. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I mean, but yes, caning is. <laughs> I'm sure they uh, don't. Definitely a practice that is, you know, still around and something they've kept from uh, colonial times. And and the, the, there's this incident where vandalism is, is treated very seriously. And I was there was in this middle incident. school. I remember this. I was in middle school. Yeah, yeah. So so there was an American citizen who yeah. like spray painted on some rail coaches and cars or something like that. And uh, Singapore, Singapore caned an American citizen. They I beat mean, the crap out of him. Yeah, it became a it became a huge uh, incident. And and there was also this one time when an American ambassador tried to like comment on like the policies of the uh, uh, local government or whatever, and then he was you know promptly summoned <laughs> and uh, told to you know go back to the United States. And yeah, Singapore doesn't uh, play like that. Yeah, I remember when that happened. It was I was like, "What?" <laughs> That's like, it's like spanking is sort of like taboo in the U.S. I was like, they and they like, it's like hit him with like 
a piece of sugar cane like that's real um and because because within singapore they are quite ruthless about this is how we do things here this is what we do we understand singapore better than you so we run it the way we want to run it so that is one and like and, and that is the reason whenever like people uh, outside singapore talk about singapore two things always inevitably come up one is oh they're so silly you know gum is banned there which is like which is one of the things and the other thing is that oh you know the keen people in singapore because this this thing had become such an incident back then yeah there was this there was this other incident uh, with the wire the magazine uh singapore singapore was uh, quite uh, brutal and stern in how they reprimanded it i think it was the very first issue of wired in which uh wired was doing a piece on singapore and they called uh, uh singapore disneyland with a death penalty uh uh so so basically uh kind of criticizing that you know singapore still has death penalty in place and if you were caught in possession of drugs you could be hanged uh, a rule that exists to this day and even like when I, when i was going to singapore as like this you know starry eyed uh, uh, 18 year old i was all like oh you know and then they they give you this embarkation card and on that in all caps it uh, it's written you know death to drug traffickers death penalty to drug traffickers it's it's like it's not it's not welcome to singapore i mean <laughs> that's that's also written but like it's very like clear it's like all caps it's written there it's it's quite visible uh, and then even the i think even the immigration uh, department logo is like jail bars or something like that something like that and that's that's definitely there i think i think even now uh, they they are going to uh hang a woman i i think it's been I many years that. since a woman has been hanged given the death penalty for this i think it's happening yeah she's like 45 years it's old it's happened very soon i believe it was for drug trafficking yeah, right yeah and and i was like i saw that card uh, uh death penalty and then i started looking in my bag i mean <laughs> i don't even have talcum powder in my bag i don't know what i'm looking for cocaine for <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah it's uh yeah they're very they're very strict death penalty and all that so and also the, the the drugs thing there's also more context of it right like uh, a, a bigger historical context which is uh there was a huge uh, crime problem in singapore because because of it being this island of vice and you know it was in the 1800s i'm talking about it was you know all sorts of vice flourished uh in these areas and it was like the stopping place for the ships and all that and if you just let drugs freely enter an island like that you god knows the kind of damage it can wreak so yet yeah, it, it sort of makes sense based on that cultural context to be so harsh on the drug problem um so i guess it's pretty clear from like our you know very independent experiences that like the the impression of like singapore's punishment system is pretty fierce but if you know for our listeners that may not have any impression of singapore what would you like people to like that maybe that goes unknown about singapore maybe surprising to our listeners what is impressive about singapore the thing with singapore is that singapore is like a spinning top you know the the toy it 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 has to keep spinning at a certain pace to keep spinning and keep surviving and keep to keep moving into the future because because singapore is not resource rich like the united states or even india or china it's not like 
it's not like they're they're selling their oil to then make money and afford all these comforts. They are able to create this because they have created a place that is so desirable that all kinds of uh, talent is being attracted to this place, and that is how they're charging it to the future. So this is very important for them to keep it Sorry. up and keep spinning at the space. Why do they? Why do they need to keep attracting talent? Yeah. The way Singapore makes its money is by the quality of its workforce because they have to both create a very good workforce and attract very good workforce from the world over because that is how they're making their money. It's not like it's not like they have a lot of mineral resources and you know they're selling it and then <laughs> sitting on it. So for example, Japan is another country that has no resources. And yeah. while I was there, the people would often tell me yeah. That we are our natural resource. Yeah. The people of the country are the yeah. natural resource. And so they produce high-functioning companies. Honda, Toyota, all of these brands that you know come from there, right? But they don't find their talent overseas. They simply develop their educational system to the point where they can produce high-functioning individuals within their country. So why is it that Singapore doesn't improve their educational system? So that they don't have to import. Oh, the answer talent. to that is very simple. But the they're already a melting is... pot, as opposed to Japan. Yeah. that's yeah. like was isolated for so long. Yeah, being that you're being that you're already a melting pot is a good thing, but it doesn't give me the necessity of having to import. And, and you have to understand the for, for the Japanese to say. You know, to, the Japanese to hold such a pride, like uh, Lee Kuan Yew writes in this book, like we are the children of Amaterasu and all that, like for them to have that kind of pride in their race and to have that kind of excellence and belief in their excellence, it takes a long track record of doing and of excellence and a long history. And compared to that, with Singapore, we have to understand, compared to Singapore, uh, compared to Japan, Singapore is a baby because because Singapore is, is like 50-ish years old and that is barely two generations. That makes sense. I mean... I think what we've learned from this book is like Singapore is a tiny little island, right? Like, and it was this kind of malaria infested kind of naval stop is my understanding. And Lee Kuan Yew was able to turn it around. I mean, with some pretty strict guidelines and, you know, strict structure, turn it into one of, the most prosperous cities and in, in countries in the world, right? Like it's now one of the most expensive places to live in the world, right? Like it's what it, I'm curious in the population density, I think also contributes to why, what we were talking about these like social structures being so strict, because if you're literally, you know, sharing and operating and, and moving within a city that is just jam packed with every type of person. Like we're going to need some rules in place so that we can all respect each other. Kind of like the Dorian fruit you're mentioning, Vicky. Like we can't all just be stinking up the buses. Of course, like like <laughs> it is it is a matter of talent. Of course, you want to build these you know world class institutions, and you want uh, to keep attracting talent so that you keep staying on the cutting edge, and you know you keep getting better. But but now the, the the interesting situation is that it is no more just about talent because because now when when you have a population that is not even reaching what we call the replacement rate of two point one babies per couple when the when couples are not even having uh, are not having couples are not having children enough to get to the replacement rate then it's not even a matter of mm. talent it's a matter of 
we don't even have enough younger people to replace uh, people doing the jobs we have now as the older generation, you know, uh, moves into older age and can't do those jobs anymore. And and it's also like it's it's also not that simple that we just let people in either. Right. Because because it's an immigration problem. If you look at it, I mean, there are a lot of Indians who would love to go to Singapore, take up the jobs. I mean, I wanted to, which is why I went there. Right. I mean, so there are a lot of Indians, especially tech jobs, uh, Indians who would love to take up the tech jobs. And even on the lower end of the spectrum, like uh, there are a lot of these uh, manual labor and lower paying jobs, but there are many Indians who would love to go because, you know, the wages are better and whatnot. But then you can't just let uh, immigrants in because there is there is an understood racial mix, right? Uh, a commonly accepted racial mix. Because usually the configuration tends to be that 70%, around 70% is Chinese, and the rest of the 30% is uh, is shared by the other races, roughly. So the Chinese are 65 to 70%, somewhere there. And so say you keep letting in Indians, and then, and then the mix becomes 60% Chinese and 25% Indian. So now that is a tricky situation to handle politically, because... The majority is obviously going to be unnerved by the sudden change in configuration, and also, and also, like an Indian Indian, uh, and also Indian Indians are not the same as Singaporean Indians, right? Like an Indian Indian and a Singaporean Indian are not the same thing. Like they have a very different set of values. So, I mean, at least if 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 someone like me who went there for their bachelors and you know had spend some time there that is at least slightly better if you want to integrate them into Singaporean society but then say someone goes there after they're 27 like they've already formed a, a very strong identity of their own right then you're not you're not making them a Singaporean after that point it's it's not that easy so so that that becomes a tricky thing because uh, an Indian who goes after like 27 or something like that is very likely going to stay an Indian Indian by culture and they are going to have uh, a pressure on the culture of Singapore to to change. So that cultural pressure will be very real, which is what, you know, Lee Kuan Yew also talks about, about how, you know, how that shifts and how that can create a, a conflict there. So what did you guys think about the whole the population and the whole thing? I definitely, I can empathize to a degree, right? So obviously coming from Texas where, you know, I grew up think in a, kind of mixed neighborhood right like I had a significant Latino population um second or I guess like it was like white Latino black and then we really didn't have much like Indian Asian influence in our area but of course when I learned that there are more Spanish speakers in Texas than there are English speakers this was when I let's say 20 what's it 2005 I learned that. That you're more I, what? More Spanish speakers in Texas than English speakers. As citizens overall? As citizens and I'm sure as residents, yeah. Um, I mean, I, this does get into the immigration, illegal immigrant topic, but I guess the, the what I saw my counterparts, family, friends, teachers, whatever – they're very sensitive or used to be very sensitive about the influence yeah. of yeah. Latinos in our area. And of course, you know, kind of the same narrative that we hear today, like they're taking our jobs or whatever. 
Um, and me, even though I was like very young at this point, I'm thinking, well, shit, I need to learn Spanish, right? <laughs> like, um, if I want to thrive in this state and in this world, like, why not be bilingual? Why not be bilingual? And it blows me away how many Americans don't speak a second. I mean, obviously the need isn't there for most, for most Americans. And, and so when I'm thinking, looking at Singapore, I imagine a lot, a lot of these people probably speak like three, four languages, especially coming from India. I know they got like the collections of languages that exist just within India is really fascinating. Um, and so, and we touched on last time, the way Lee Kuan Yew kind of unified Singapore was making English the lingua franca. Um, it was both as a way to welcome all these different ethnic groups, but also standardize this form of communication that could almost unify its identity a little bit more. Um, so it, it's interesting for me to think about. It's I. I truly, if I had the opportunity, I would move to Singapore uh-huh. for a year, two years. Be so fascinating. That part of so, the, the region and its history, so interesting. So yeah, with that strategy that Lee Kuan Yew used where he standardized, made English the main language to ensure that everyone can communicate and share culture and share ideas, you'd be and in trade favor too. of... And trade also. You've been in favor of more Americans learning Spanish? At least te- I can speak for Texas. You know, it's, and then probably just like the southern border in general. Um, but absolutely. I mean, when I was in school, you had a choice of like Spanish or French, you know, and, and this is just, you know, public schools or whatever. I, I really didn't see any reason to take French. <laughs> Right. Like maybe if I lived on the northern border, close to Canada and Quebec and stuff like sure, maybe. But I always saw the advantage being Spanish always. Um, And, you know, went on to study Latin America and study abroad. And, you know, it's really kind of cultivated a love affair for me, the language and the people. Um, So, yeah, I guess I even felt like even though I'm caucasian as they come like i felt like an outsider next to people who are like trying to push away and like resented this diversity and i I don't know like i it doesn't seem like singapore at least they were able to mitigate these feelings right like by kind of what do you call it regulating the housing making sure groups of people weren't getting too large or whatever right so that it would prevent or even limit that feeling of like let's shun the other you're different from me so like it's so it's it's apples and oranges i think texas and singapore it's really hard to draw you know it's so so very different historically and geographically so that's that's so that's one way of answering the question is about bringing people together and you know the language part of it how I'd answer the question is that this strategy of um, because we're talking about the Singaporean just remind me the question, Vikat. The, 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 you're, you're saying the whole thing of women not having enough children 
to sustain the population as it is in Singapore and how that affects um, the economics, essentially? So the basically, the replacement rate is 2.1. And if people are not having uh, enough children to for it to average it to 2.1 kids per couple, then... Then you have a you have a deficit because uh, there aren't enough people to take up the jobs. So then you would have to, you know, have people come from outside and you know immigrate right. to your country uh, to to take those jobs on. How did we how did we get here? How did we get to the language thing? So 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 yeah. So so when yeah. that happens, so, so the cultural balance thing might be upset. And how do we handle the right. repercussions and all that? Right. So yeah, um, I'd say this. The strategy of basing the survival of your economy on the, I'd say, fertility of your woman, essentially. <laughs> like, putting, because uh, how I see it, even in the book when he talks about, um, like, I think at one point he used the word responsibility. Well, fertility of men, too. Well, right. I don't think women having, the, the birth rate, I don't think is really something that men are choosing. I think it's mainly based on the decision of women choosing to have less kids because the birth control and the condoms and stuff like that, which gives women more power over their body. But male fertility rates are going down generally. That's true. That's true. But whenever we're talking about population growth, I don't really hear people blaming the lack of children in society on the fact that... Because I don't think men fertility rates is that prevalent to the point where you'd say 20% of males have a problem giving birth to children or, or you know, reproducing. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I would agree. I don't know those numbers, but generally the, the dialogue that I hear is like, oh, it's because, you know, women are d making different choices, right? right. Like so that's mainly education. the cost. Yeah. Good. I think that's also presumptive simply because I don't think very many men have their sperm tested like routinely until they're like in a marriage Something's and it's not working. Like a wife is really pressuring them. Yeah. And they're like, so I don't know. I just feel like that's, a, that's something we don't know. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So my point is that essentially the success of your economy is dependent on your people having children at a rate so that they can have enough people to pay into the beast, which is their welfare system, which they are then using to take care of the older people. I think that that model of how to run society, it puts pressure on your women. It puts pressure on your families overall to have children out of some patriotic allegiance to somehow sustain the population number to be able to maintain this welfare state. So... Here, take it a step further. So, like, Japan also struggles with population growth or, like, population right. De decline, right? So, I mean, this could be very well something that we experience in the maybe decades coming. But here, what if countries start fighting for young immigrants to come to their country? We are, we're already kind of seeing it. Like, we'll so, pay you to move here because so, we need that young workforce to support our older generations. Good. So I think that that included with putting pressure on people to have more kids. Yeah. I'd also say that this rush to bring in new people into your country to 
increase your population and this rush to increase the young people so that we can feed into this welfare system. I think the problem is the welfare system. It isn't the people and it isn't the fertility. Mm. It's the welfare system that puts this pressure on society to consistently be feeding the beast, right? So how about... But I think... How about... Just a crazy idea here. How about finding a way... (laughs) Finding a way to phase out your welfare system to maybe the people who already paid into it find a way to pay them but then stop it for your younger people allow your young because you see if for me it's like a what they call it a catch-22 type thing where yeah you need a big population to feed into your welfare system but yet still your welfare system taking away 30 to 35 percent of your young people's paycheck takes away that added cash that they would use to start families. Turn on, uh, turn on, hang on. Uh, wait, what assumptions are you making about the Singaporean welfare system? Because it doesn't work exactly like the uh, NHS. What is your assumption? They get pensions. No, no, no. My, my, My assumption is that they are taking a sizable portion of young people's paycheck to get the capital necessary to take care of their elderly. Because that's how, however you want to give, whether it's pension or healthcare, just the fact that you have a large population of elderly people who you have to take care of as the state, it puts that pressure on the younger people. And then taking away that capital, it, it prevents your young people from investing in themselves, furthering their own education. They can't buy homes at the same age that their parents could. They can't afford a car. They can't, it just it, this, it, it, it slows down their growth as a generation. And also, the, the Singaporean system doesn't work that, you know, all of healthcare, uh, like NHS or other systems, it's not, it's not like all of healthcare is, you know, paid for. And uh, the, uh, the VA, Singapore ensures that, uh, you know, the older people are taken care of is by, through means like the Provident Funds, where, where you're required to, you know, keep a certain part of your earnings into that. And then... Uh, I mean, of course, you are allowed to draw it under special circumstances if you want to, you know, put a deposit on your HDB flat or something like that. And there, there are certain conditions. But then if you do that, the people who do that and, you know, don't take care of their finances pay dearly in their old age, which is how, which is why you see like there are many old people, you know, cleaning tables and doing all sorts of menial tasks in Singapore. Because, I mean, I'm not saying everyone who's doing that, you know, it was just bad finances but there are cases where you know people could not save as effectively and their old age and you know they are paying the price for that so it's not it's not true that singapore is just you know giving out money to take care of their old and also the thing with younger people is that you need younger people to fill into the jobs and to and to do more productive things and to keep up the money and to and to you know increase the gdp and that turns into taxes and that runs your trains and that paves your roads and that funds your military and, you know, all of these things. So that that is what you need it for. It's, it's not just about, you know, taking care of the old people. But what, what, why is the government managing trains and feeding people and doing all of that? That's what, that's what the private, in, private companies are for. Private Can people run trains and do stuff. Why would the government need to take money from the people to run the trains? Wait, you would rather have Singapore... The, wait, the That's trains? How do they run? How it goes. Yeah. So you're saying privatize everything. That's what I'm hearing. 
privatize road built and trains, privatize. No, so so for example, in countries like Japan, I think seventy percent of all roads are built by private industry. I think that, that the also same applies well. in Italy. But are they subcontracted by the government? <laughs> yeah, the, the government negotiates with these companies and the companies build these roads and they kind of negotiate what the, the tolls will be on the roads. So it's still tax dollars that pays these companies. No, there's no tax dollars that there's no tax dollars that go into it. So what it is is that Then how is the government paying them? <laughs> so the government doesn't pay them at all. What happens is that so these, who pays them? So what happens is that the companies who build these roads, what they, what the government would negotiate is the toll that they will charge on the road. So for example, if they want to recuperate their expenses in a 10-year period, well then the tolls will be pretty high. But if the government negotiates that over a 45-year period, well then the tolls are very low and over time the roads get paid for by the people who use the roads and then the road goes to the people because it's essentially the people using the road would pay it off back to the private companies and then the road belongs to the state itself. So once it's paid off, do they take away the tolls? Yes, the tolls go away because there's no one to pay. Interesting. Right. So and also uh, Singapore's sovereign wealth fund has investments in all of these and you know there are public private partnerships and there are various things uh, that happen with the trains and all that. But 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 you said you know they should just revamp the education system they should not have anyone come from outside. So they have to you said they have to revamp the education system. Where does the money for all that come from? The money for what? Revamping an education system. You don't need to, to revamp, revamp the education system. system. Schools can be run by private companies. If, if, if companies are competing to attract your child and they're competing against each other to provide the best education, they will innovate. The technologies in each school will improve and you'll have a striving educational system in the same way. Now, you can standardize examinations to ensure that these schools are bringing kids up to a specific level. And whichever institution gets kids to pass these examinations at a high clip will gain prestige, gain a reputation. People will choose to send their kids there. And the competition will, just like any other product, competition will lead to quality. And it will be fine. The government doesn't need to run education. I don't know. My experience with capitalism, it's not an upward movement, but a downward movement to the cheapest price. Cheapest price? What does that happen with four? What do you mean by So far, the four... It's not an upward movement equality, right? Like companies aren't really competing with each other, like maybe to some extent, but you're leaving out so much of the population that capitalism is, I find, to have a much stronger downward movement to the cheapest price, to the to lowest common denominator, to cutting all corners, cheapest supplies, cheapest labor. Yeah, $3 t-shirt at Walmart yeah, exactly. made by yeah. some children it's, somewhere. And, and yeah, maybe well, you'll have like a certain percentage that does is able to offer, you know, maybe you have two schools, just sticking with this example, that, you know, are the best schools and they're competing for the top dollar because they, but you're talking about like the upper percentage of that population that can right. afford it. Good. So just like the clothes that you refer to, Daniel, yes, people produce cheap clothes, because there are people who are poor who can only afford those cheap clothes. And so there's a market for it. And so in the same case with education, there will be poor people who can't afford the, the highest end schools. But then there will be cheaper options provided for them too. Yes, they won't have the high tech computers. Yes, they won't be able to afford all the same gear as the top tier schools. 
But there will be high-quality schools who can provide education, maybe bigger classrooms to be able to, you know, those small money added together can pay for the things. But there will be things, it, it will work itself out, as it always does. It will work itself out. The government doesn't need so, to manage so, every aspect of this. So system. your contention is that in 1965, when Singapore became independent, if Singapore, instead of doing everything it has done, if it had just let businesses run, Singapore would be in a better place? In 1964. So that's your contention? I, I, I wasn't going that I don't think they could be far. in a better place. I, I don't. I, that was when Singapore's independence. Okay, so, so we're, we're just talking about the welfare system. And I'm saying that in order for, for us to lift the burden that the young people are carrying right now, the, the same burden that's preventing them from having the capital necessary to have kids, to lift that burden, you have to phase out that welfare system. That's what I'm saying. And if you, if you, if you keep that in place, you're going to suppress young people's ability to have kids and you're going to have the same problem that you're trying to avoid. I also think, so in a place like Singapore, it's similar in Canada. I think that's like quite well curated. And like the, the flip side of that is that if you don't have a system that supports older people, right, there's only a fraction of the population that's going to have investments and capital to live off of after a certain period of time. And so then you end up with a population of elderly people <laughs> who are like on the streets, what? like that doesn't go with the curated city of Singapore. And so that's not an option. Why, why is that? Daniel? And what do you mean? Why is that? If they don't have money and they can't, uh, their rent doesn't go away no, and they I, can't work. I'm anymore. talking about your assumption that if people were allowed to keep more of what they earned instead of the government taking because, out a chunk of it. Because people why would aren't they that not, organized. Why would they not have money when they're older if they have more money that they could put away some because or save it? Because people, or put in because people spend their money. Because ah, people spend their well, money. Maybe if you know that you'll need money for your elderly years, maybe you'll spend less money then. Because you, it's an expectation no. that you'll be able to take care of, that you'll need to take care of yourself when you're older. And that's an additional reason to have kids. If you look at places like China, they want to have kids because they want young people to be able to take care of them when they're elderly. And so it's an incentive to have kids, plus you have the money to do so, and you won't have a population growth problem in that case. So, so there's, the, there's the concept the, of positive externalities, right? Like positive externalities is the idea that whenever a system does something, there are certain benefits that overflow out of the system and benefit systems around it. So when the, when you look at education is is one of those things where it creates positive externalities and businesses the way the businesses function is that they want all of the externalities and the the sole intention of the business is profit so unless it is uh, an action is able to lock all of its positive externalities into the profit and claw back a business is not going to do that and and education is something that has to be thought of as multi-generational almost. Like you have to think about, because education is all about positive externalities. It's about what does it do to the culture? How does it ensure our youth are prepared for the jobs of the future? It's, it's all these things. So when, the so when the excess benefit can't be clawed back as profit, uh, an institution that, you know, works quarter to quarter and thinks about profit is just not, businesses are just not able to find that good solution for, for well, something the, like education. The for-profit schools in the U.S. have not done well. Yeah, because they don't care about people. I mean, 
business, when you're business minded and you're looking for like, how do I make a profit that rarely, rarely, maybe I'm not going to say never, but rarely does it benefit the consumer. Because, and also as someone who's running a school, I always think about this, like, why is this so hard to, to, to run a school and to, you know, think about, uh, like the positive externalities and like the the concept the notion of uh, the profit and all of that like i th- and if we were to think about you know how do we claw all the positive externalities and make profit for every externality you create if you were to price it accordingly right. like it would be it Education, would not yeah, be accessible very... to most people well, it just would not be accessible and that's what's happened in in the US the world school i think it's called world school um, is the the probably the only for-profit school that's that's done well that's not a college um and their tuition the last time i right that's not a university so if you're talking about k through 12 like kindergarten through high school there are only a very small handful of for-profit schools in the u.s and the one that's doing the best has a tuition point of fifty two thousand dollars a year jesus how do you supposed so, to save for retirement? <laughs> so hold on, Daniel. These are people in Manhattan and Silicon Valley, and and they have a campus in Shenzhen and or, um, San Paulo. And so, you know, they have these sister schools, and that's part of their allure. Send your child here, and they can, like, crisscross campuses. Um, but so, they're, they're, like, barely making money, and they're charging students $52,000 a year. So, um you said that private schools don't do well in America. That's no, I said for profit schools, schools, private schools are nonprofit schools. The majority of them in the U S for profit schools don't do well. Well, even private schools, private schools run by private people and not the government. They don't get government funded Are nonprofits. Yes, they do. They get grants. They get a lot of grants from the government. Okay. So in tax relief for religious tax relief. Okay. So, well, even independent schools get tax write-offs. Good. So you said the for-profit schools don't do well. Where, where did you get that? Where did they? Are you sure about that? Yeah. The, so the the world school the world school is the only option that I saw that's a like a for-profit school that has multiple campuses. And that guy bit, like bankrupt two other school attempts previously. Um, and it's because you have investors who are not educationally minded who are driving the profits. And so then you're bringing people in due to bells and whistles, not necessarily educational. I mean, and the thing is, the people that you're attracting at a $52,000 price point are smart already. Like, let's be honest here. The teachers could do nothing and those kids would do fine because they understand the way the world works and they're privileged and intelligent. Good. So, and so you guys. So it's, clearly, not a, it's not a fair assessment. Based on what you're saying, you guys don't have a competitive for-profit private academic system in America. So, so you yeah. wouldn't be able to disprove my argument being that you don't have the system in place in America to make a determination about how it will end up. But I'm saying but that... the transition is impractical, is what I'm saying. Well, the any good business is going to ask themselves, how can we increase so think profits that you and could, minify, yeah. minimize no, expenses? Yes. I think, yeah, this... Yeah, I think I think this conversation maybe will be taking too long. As in, for the whole Singapore thing, that maybe we need to discuss education in a different. How thing. so? But how I'm does just, Singapore pay my, for its education system? I guess my my, my only point is that the problem may not be the immigrants 
or the fertility of your people. The problem may be the welfare system. That's the only point that I'm saying. That's what makes all of that that you guys are doing necessary. And if you eliminated that, then all the problems would go away. However, you could. If maybe it's a different route, maybe you have a better idea of, of bringing down the, of getting rid of the, the welfare system. It's an state. imperfect system, for sure. There, I think there's a better solution that's going to help our future generations. I'm just not and, sure and, what that and, looks and like. And as far as I'm concerned, the generation that we are trying to take care of lived better lives than us. Yeah. They had kids at a younger age. They were able to start families at a younger age. And yeah. then to be and taking our money, income. to be taking our money, to be paying for them now in their elderly years, being that they already lived better lives, it just right. doesn't seem right to, to, to the younger generation either. So, Again, again, this is assuming that Singapore has that system. It is, it is not true. Vicky, again, even to refute the education point, you're going to the welfare thing. Like, I think it's really interesting to look at a place like Singapore as somebody in the U.S. Um, it's obviously smaller, but their ability to keep order in a way that seems fairly, I make up, it's consensual. Like they reelect him, and so clearly they're happy with the you know fairly strict policies. But I think that that is something that. I think is really interesting. And how do you create uh, such a diverse country that has a cohesive national narrative? Um, and, and that's sort of what I, I took from it is that it seems like it's working. And now, you know, they just got listed as they bumped Japan out for the most pop powerful passport, which I think sort of implies that on a national level, they're seen as you know, not risky, like people who are going to come in, do honest work, do business, take vacations and leave um, or play by the rules, that that also sort of indicates an elevated, um, like just cultural, cultural awareness. So I, I really enjoyed it. And, and like Kat, I sort of feel like I also am prone to whimsy, fits of whimsy. Um, but I would love to visit Singapore. I think that would be like, just fantastic. That's what I got. Don, closing comments? Um, good book. Um, Lee Kuan Yew, I can say I have some respect for him. He, he's a very balanced politician. He's not, I wouldn't like, as far as the American left and the American right is concerned, I'd say he's a very balanced person. He's in the middle. He takes a bit of, you know, from both sides, I'd say. He buys into the welfare system, but sees that there are some drawbacks to it. He buys into, you know, different things a bit. But um, overall, I'd say that I understand why he's so popular with a lot of American presidents and leaders around the world. And I think that's because he really didn't make any controversial statements in this book. Yes, he said that 9-11 was bad. I mean, the, the crash in 2008 was bad because the banks were, you know a bit greedy with the money and stuff like that, but he didn't criticize American war policy. Well, he did say that they diminished their reputation due to certain wars around the world, which is the hardest criticism that he gave about the interventionary policies of the American state, which um, I think if he was being neutral, he would have been harder on them for their war interventionist policy. But he played it very smooth with the Americans. So I see why he's in the good favor of the Western countries. He, he knows what to say and what not to say. He's a good politician. 
in terms of how he turned around Singapore, I'd say he did an excellent job. Um, while still being a humble person, I noticed that he's not one of those persons who went into governments to enrich himself, to, you know, make a ton of cash, like just like in America where a politician will go in with a net worth of $2 million and then come out with a net worth of 100 and something million. If you Google net worth of American politicians, it's crazy. It's crazy, okay? So he's not that guy. And even his son, who I hear is getting into the politics thing too, um, oh, he's also son, planning. His son is the current prime minister, man. Oh, really? Uh, he's been the prime minister for like 20 years now. Okay, cool. So his son, I hear, also isn't planning to take a lot of money from the government, as in what he gets paid very humble people, people who actually want to do something good for the country, not just to serve themselves. Um, good book, good read. Yeah, that's it. Kat? Yeah, I have pretty incredible respect for Lee Kuan Yew. Um, when I was doing kind of just like outside research, because just reading the book, it just seemed like Donovan said, so well-balanced in his perspective. And granted, this is a man who lived, like, full, full life. Um, what was it, 91, 92 years old he passed away? Um, and to have the foresight and the ability to execute his vision that he had for Singapore took a, a tremendous amount of wherewithal, right? Like, determination and and just persistence and so when I was kind of doing my outside research he the worst I could find you know just like criticisms or just different perspectives I think he's uh referred to by as a benevolent benel- uh, sorry benevolent dictator um and or that it's like a guided democracy um and most of this was around like restricting labor movements and narrowing press and public protests. But at the same time, it's like coming back to that sense of balanced perspective. Um, I don't see how he would have been able to accomplish so much without that kind of restraint or control. Um, so super interesting case study and, um, I would, I'm really excited to see where Singapore goes because like, as they're facing these, these issues that we're talking about, you know, having a heavy, a top heavy, uh, demographic, it will be easier for them to kind of play around with different solutions and have kind of a quicker turnaround to see like, Hey, what, what worked for them is what could we adopt it? Um, you know, kind of transition it into a different, different case study again like i think comparing the united states and singapore is like apples and oranges it's it's doesn't really make like you can do you can try it but it doesn't really work yeah um so awesome it was really cool to get his perspective on on his view of the world yeah what i've what i've really liked about lee kuan yu is about uh how how pragmatic he is about how just because there is an ideological stance, it's not like, like even in the book he talks about at that time, I used to think this and then I have since learned and, you know, this is what I think now and about how clear his communication is about what needs to be done. And uh, he talks about, I mean, of course he says it in a way that, you know, it doesn't cause 
too much trouble because he is uh, in the position he is. But he's always, he makes sure it is said. What has to be said is said. And he talks about what needs to be done. And, you know, like, because Singapore is in a, isn't that kind of place, like, like a spinning top, like I said. And I mean, the, his book about, uh, his, his book before this book, I believe, is called about what Singapore needs to do to, you know, move into the future is literally called hard truths to keep Singapore going. And, and to see that, to see that happen, to see that the human potential to take Singapore from where it was to where it is now and, and to see that that is possible by a person. And of course, and of course, critics always like to say, you know, it's very small. That's why he could do it. And I mean, yeah, fine. I mean, there are 50 other places. There are a lot of places that are small. There are 50 other places I can point to which are small. But to be able to take a place like where it was and to do that is is just remarkable. And and of course, there were other great leaders as well, like Limkin San, who was... Uh, you know, the man behind the housing development board uh, housing situation and then Go Chak Tong who took after him and then uh, as the prime minister and then Lee Sin Lung who's still the prime minister. Of course, there were a lot of them, but uh, but Lee Kuan Yew has contributed a great deal. And, and one of the stories that I really like is that I think this was in 2013, Kuan Yew was speaking to students at the National University of Singapore. National University of Singapore, one of the Asia's top university and obviously Singapore's too, and, you know, prestigious the world over. And he's talking to students then, someone asks him a question of what should the youth of today remember, uh, keep in mind to make sure Singapore stays as vital as it is. And Lee Kuan Yew says, the youth of today should never forget where we were. Like today, you know, it's very easy to see it has always, it is very easy to assume it has always been this way. Like, these days, you walk out of your HDB flat, you don't even have to carry an umbrella because there is this, you know, a roof over your footpath and you, uh, all through your pathways and, you know, you, you can get to the bus stop. And this is true. Like, the, the level of facilities are uh, at, that, at that top notch. And he talks about, uh, he tells a story about how Lim Kim Tan, who was in charge of the HDB development project, before the project began, was surveying different neighborhoods. And then he went to a place in Chinatown. And then they went to this like really small dwelling. And then they asked a man to come out to talk about like the living conditions there and to, you know, get a perspective. And then the man refused to come out. And Limkin San is like, why, why, why do you not want to come out? And then he tells that, oh, I share this bunk. In the in that small dwelling, there is a bunk that he shares with his uh with a friend of his, and he he is wearing my good pants and he's gone out for work so i can't you know <laughs> come out right now and uh, it's uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating story to the teen narrates and for, the, for singapore's youth to remember that the level of poverty that existed and how far they've come and to make sure they never lose sight of that so or or else likoni wants that we will cease to be what we are now in the future so, so thanks to you all and uh, thank you to our listeners. And if you want to uh, learn more about him, you can check out his books and there are a lot of his speeches online. And I know, you know, when we were having this discussion, someone said he's a very humble man and all of that. But then you really see the power of his persona and the brute force of his words when you see him in the speeches. So you can find them online and uh, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
Avasti Métis. This is the end of our show today, but don't go just yet. Be a real treasure hunter and share this episode with a friend. Like what we're doing? Tell us what you think by leaving a comment and following us on your preferred platform. To continue the conversation, tweet us at The Sunken Tea. And don't forget, you can join in on the adventure by sending us your own sunken treasure by using the link in the description. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again in our next episode of The Sunken Treasures. <laughs>